Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Video games are not a fringe form of entertainment anymore. Over 50 years of development, they have carved a place for themselves that is worth billions of dollars and includes a majority of people in North America, not to mention other parts of the world. But about a decade into the existence of video games, the industry collapsed, losing about 97% of its value in the span of less than two years, and the entire medium's future was briefly in question. So what caused this crash? And why are we talking about gaming on a history podcast anyway? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to talk about video games. I was never expecting to be here. Uh, Woo! I'm excited. I think you pitched me this as an idea like, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago, maybe. I spent a lot of time thinking like, ah, what are we going to talk about with video games? Like, this is not a... This is not a history topic, um, but something interesting has happened since then, which is that I uh, I did an episode as part of my series on fascism. Don't worry, I'm getting into video games eventually. <laughs> Hopefully not directly related to fascism, but like maybe? Extremely indirectly. No, no, no. I did an episode uh, where we talked about a couple of different political ideologies through um, basically the way they would have uh, analyzed the French Revolution as sort of like a grounding technique, I suppose. Mm. And I got a lot of really good feedback from that, which is great. But a lot of people were basically going, hey, could you do something like that for other things? And I'm thinking like, ah, there's not a lot of, it's not a lot of history topics I want to like just straight up both sides, right? Like some of them, <laughs> there's just not a lot of leeway there. Yep. Yeah, it's very fair. But the more I thought about your suggestion of video games, the more I thought there's actually a lot of really good things that we can do here because specifically what we're going to talk about today is there was a, a massive crash uh, in the mid-1980s uh, in the video games industry. And what I'd like to do is tell basically four different versions of this story. And the reason I'm going to do it this way is, you know, Number one, as, as, a, as a topic, I think video games is really interesting because I want to do more, you know, social history, even business history to some extent. I think it's the sort of thing that a lot of people turn their nose up at a little bit. Uh, a lot of people think of, you know, quote, real history as, you know, military and political history, things like that. But, you know, this is important stuff too, right? Like this is part of what shapes the world around us. It's not something to just be completely ignored. But also, like, I, I think this is a really, this topic specifically is a really good way to look at a very, very complex um, set of circumstances from a 
bunch of different ways and see just how much that framing that goes into it, like the, the framing, uh, um, sort of the framework that we look at these things through uh, affects our understanding of it, right? So I want to talk about um, this crash from a few different uh, perspectives. Uh, probably the first one is going to be the longest. We'll probably spend the whole first half on it. And then we'll m move into looking at a few other uh, other things. We'll, you know, it'll make more sense once, once we get there. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in looking at how uh, everything from like individual decisions to like big uh, societal forces can really have an impact and come together in a really specific way. So that's the general plan. I'm excited. Let me give you the short version of what we're talking about today. And I think this part is probably going to sound very familiar to you. I think most people have some sense of this. Um, basically, in 1983, uh, in North America, uh, the U.S. console video game industry was just taking off. And in 1983, it had been a $3.2 billion industry, which is massive. Just the consoles on their own are a bigger industry than like Hollywood films. And we kind of think of gaming as being a little bit of like a niche hobby at this point in time. It's got some stigma around it, all of that. But it's actually extremely lucrative. Then, between that, that big year in 1983 and 1985, by 1985, it's gone from uh, $3.2 billion for just the home console video game industry down to $100 million, which is a 97% reduction. Oh. Yeah. It's bad. I, I did not realize the numbers had gotten that high. That's the 80s. Yeah, that's the 80s. So there's inflation uh, adjustment to be done there. It's probably, I would have to look it up. It's probably about triple that in today's money, maybe more. I'm, I'll stick it in the notes. So uh, this crash, at least in, in sort of the, the general understanding of it, was precipitated uh, by a, an extremely disastrous video game release in the Christmas 1982 season for uh, the Atari system. Uh, they made a game based on the movie E.T. And if you look at, I don't know, YouTube worst 10 video game ever lists, this is probably going to make it on there. It's a really... I, I got a chance to play it. Uh, I've played an emulator of it. I, I actually tried it again just a couple of days ago, just be, just in prep for this, because I had played it ages ago. I've never played a proper Atari version, but you can find these things on the internet. I'm not going to link to it, because that might be a bad idea. Um, <laughs> but let's just say I would not take that hard of a look around to find a playable version on the internet. Yeah. What's uh, what was your what was your impression of this game? Uh, I didn't understand what the game wanted me to do there, there was no instructions mm -hmm. uh visually it was it was very very challenging to discern different objects and yeah I, I didn't know what the goal was at all yeah i think that's probably the the most relevant piece of criticism for that game is it's it's very unclear um you know graphics are par for the time and things like that but it's just mostly confusing um anyway we can get into those specifics later but they release E.T., Christmas 1982, it is widely panned, and within a year, the company Atari was essentially destroyed. It was basically gone, sold for parts, uh, and in the process, um, thousands of copies of this game are buried in a landfill in New Mexico, and this is like an urban legend for years and years and years, until it's actually proven true in uh, 2014, actually, and popular wisdom would say that 
the American video game market really only recovers uh, again in 1986 with the release of Nintendo's uh, NES. So that's kind of the short version here, right? Things go so badly, sort of maybe because of this one video game, that the, the, the market doesn't really recover for another three years. So does that all more or less stack up with your understanding of that era of, of video games? This is perfect because that's pretty much all I knew about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of those things that's sort of like a, I don't know, like it, it's almost reached like a, a mythical point in terms of like the, it's, it's uh, infamy, I suppose. Just last week, yeah. coincidentally, mm-hmm. I was watching an episode of a television show called Elementary, which is, oh, yeah. a, you know passable uh procedural uh based around sherlock holmes uh they have an episode in i think season four uh-huh. uh where the premise is uh, a murder in the context of a, of a of a couple of guys looking for a bunch of video games in a landfill it wasn't et because they couldn't make it et but sure yeah it was enough to inspire that which was which was pretty funny sure that's interesting yeah they actually did a, a documentary in 2014 um it's called Atari Game Over. Uh, I wouldn't like necessarily recommend the documentary. Like, it's not it's not the best documentary out there. Uh, but as uh, as part of the documentary, they go to this landfill in uh, Alamogordo, uh, New Mexico, and dig up the landfill where it's where it's uh, supposedly buried. And they do find copies. This did in fact happen. Um, but for a very long time, it was it was yeah, is it actually out there kind of thing. So, what happened here? Let's let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about the the home uh, video game industry, kind of starting from the beginning, right? Video games are one of those things that, like, as long as people have had the ability to uh, code anything, they've been trying to make games out of it. Like the earliest ones, arguably, are made in the '40s off of you know mainframe computers using like oscilloscopes as monitors. Yeah. Like they're they're very very crude, but they exist. Right when you know the technology comes along enough and when you know things like integrated circuits are available and things like that uh people start trying to make uh games out of them just as soon as they're trying to make useful things out of them right and um you know you get this wave of uh very very early um game technology that's uh you know not really much more sophisticated than like a uh, a calculator today but electronic games are fairly prevalent beginning in the late 60s, early 70s. In 1972, um, Magnavox, which was a, a like a TV uh, company, they built TVs mainly, um, they release uh, what's widely considered the first home video game console. It's the Magnavox Odyssey. It's designed by a guy, guy named Ralph Baer. And you know, he had had, uh, experience like a lot of these other guys, uh, programming, you know, on university mainframes. Uh, and he wanted to bring that experience home. The technology that's happening in this, in this console is really, really limited, but it's still really interesting. There are game cards that are involved, but unlike a cartridge that you would have for later game consoles, the game cards were actually physical printed circuits. And the the odyssey on its own wouldn't do anything until you had a game card plugged in at which point it would complete circuitry for a certain game type so it's not actually like reading off of memory 
the things that the the game is doing are hard coded into the circuitry. So it is. Oh, I love that. It is not processing anything. <laughs> it essentially has the ability to draw one straight line and three blocks on a TV screen, and that's about it. the the uh, The only other differences are what you or you know how those things move around the screen. Uh, so it also come with things like dice and cards. Uh, there were sort of like static uh, latex overlays that would stick to your TV screen. So you know, you would take and put like this overlay of like a maze, for example, onto your TV screen, like stick it right to the screen and then like navigate a little block through the maze. And that would be one of the games. And wow, I guess not cheat by going through one of the walls because <laughs> there was nothing to stop it. Right. But this is the level of technology we're talking about here. <laughs> this is actually where the standard of setting uh, output for video games to channel three started. It was just it was uh. built by guys who worked with TVs, and they figured that was the easiest way to get a signal into a TV was by mimicking a TV signal. Um, so, anyways, just thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, at around the same time, uh, or actually slightly before, uh, uh, an electrical engineer named Nolan Bushnell uh, had been working with these th this type of game called electromechanical games on his summers in between attending university electromechanical games are more they're, they're like physical games with like electronic elements to them they were fairly popular in sort of the 60s think you know one type would be like pinball but with the um you know the the lights and the beeps and things like that um there's a physical game happening but it has like uh hard-coded elements of uh, electronic aspects to it. Does that make sense? Right. Um, yep. Then there would also be, there were, for example, like driving games where, you know, you would have a steering wheel and there would be a, a drum, uh, like a fairly large drum that was painted like a road. And you would try to steer the wheel to stay in the middle of the lane as the lane moved back and forth on the drum. So it looked like you were driving, uh, but there would be sensors to see whether or not you had drifted out of the lane. <laughs> so, like very, it sounds very crude, but at the same time, this is like very clearly like the forerunner of arcade games, right? Yeah, it sounds creative as well. Oh, incredibly creative! Yeah, yeah, they they sound really interesting. One of the most uh, one of the most popular ones uh, was a game built uh, actually by Sega in 1966 called Periscope, and it simulated being on board a, a submarine and looking through the periscope and targeting enemy ships um you know with with torpedoes right and so it had like you know plastic waves that would like move in your like in the view like in the viewport so you'd like look into this thing right and when you turned it it would change what you were looking at and and all of this so it would look for the time very very convincing but it's all like little plastic pieces that are moving or little spots that would light up with uh with little um electronic lights when you you when you hit something things like that um, extremely creative, but like people absolutely love these things. They're very, very popular. So Bushnell spends his time working with these games and he, 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 it's not just working with the games themselves. It's also working with like the, the business model because all of these games are coin operated, right? Like you put in a quarter or whatever and you get one play at it and they would make money hand over fist because people really wanted to play these things. They would put a lot of money into them. So he had this idea of taking his time with, you know, 
coding games on university mainframes and his experience with working at these amusement arcades with uh, electromechanical games and came up with this concept along with uh, another engineer, uh, a guy named Ted Dabney. Their, their concept was basically to take a computer, which was finally getting small enough that this was possibly a viable option and uh, basically put it in a cabinet with a dedicated monitor, put a coin slot on it and just get people to pay to play computer games, which is an arcade machine, right? That's yeah, it's exactly what it is. And again, this isn't, this isn't taken from scratch or anything like that. It's just taking electromechanical games and making it out of a computer rather than out of physical pieces. Um, it's, it's really standing on the shoulders of giants there, but they're the ones that come up with the, uh, with the concept. But the cabinet itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, Dabney is actually the one who develops the idea of instead of using a, a computer, which are still relatively large in the early 70s, right? Uh, he develops the idea of a uh, of using like a dedicated video circuit. So, again, this is not my area of expertise. If you want to weigh in on this and tell me how I could explain <laughs> it better, please feel free to jump in. But it's the difference between, again, like having a computer that is running a program through a central po- processor and having a dedicated circuit that only does one thing but isn't programmable. Does that seem like a fair explanation? You explained it very well. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm a little nervous on some of the tech end of stuff on this. I can, uh, I can help you out. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. But yeah, that seems like the easiest way to explain the difference there. Like, again, I, I, I keep coming back to like a, an, like a, like a calculator, right? Like a calculator is a, is a dedicated circuit, but it can really only do the one thing. You can't tell a calculator to do anything other than the functions that are already built into it. And that's really what these arcade games are doing too. They can play a game as it's built into the circuitry, but you can't program the, them to do anything else. So they, spend a whole bunch of money, um, like not as much as you would think, but still a decent amount of money developing one of these cabinets. And uh, in 1971, they come out with a cabinet with a game called Computer Space. It's based on a relatively popular game that's going around the the university computer labs at the time, which is called Space War. I'm not sure if you've heard of that one, but it's, uh, it's really one of the first Oh, uh, widely shared uh, computer games. It's one of the first ones that like a lot of different people are playing. The game doesn't really do, or rather the, the arcade uh, cabinet doesn't do terribly well, though. It's not easy enough to understand in an arcade setting. Um, it takes a little bit of work to figure out the rules, essentially. And, you know, they kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit and they think, well, you know, what we're looking for here isn't like, an amazing like immersive experience it is uh in the words of bushnell they needed something that any drunk at any bar could play which is fair they're looking yeah. for somebody to put quarters into it not uh you know to create a, a an amazing interactive experience this is a business venture that they're trying to set up here right so they connect up with a pinball company they're called bally manufacturing uh for some funding and they get a six-month contract and a bunch of money to develop uh one of these games back to the drawing board around the same time bushnell actually got his hands on a magnavox odyssey which had just come out and one of the games in the odyssey was a tennis game so remember we talked about it could only draw a line and then there were three uh blocks yeah. The Odyssey, one of their game cards was uh, tennis. And so it put a line down the middle of your TV 
and each one of the two players had a, a block essentially that they could control up and down and that was the racket and there was the third one that would just bounce back and forth and uh there was an overlay to make it look like a tennis match and the rules were essentially uh play this like you would tennis you know if it goes out it's the honor system kind of thing you know it's integrated circuits so it has no capability to like keep score it had no like it was very 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 basic but bushnell sees this and he goes well that's perfect like simple easy to understand a lot of fun i'm just gonna do that but in an arcade cabinet <laughs> and they get to work and a couple of months later they produce what will be pong i'm gonna say sounds pretty much like pong it's identical to Pong. There's very, very little innovation that's added by Pong, but it's it's Pong. Everybody's seen Pong. It's it's table tennis, but as a video game, it's Pong. Um, so yeah, they they put together a cabinet and they take it to Bally and they say, hey, you know, do you guys want to buy this game? Like this is this is the kind of thing we had in mind. We think this is going to be a huge hit. And Bally actually goes like, eh. I don't know. Like you need two players to play it. We're looking for something that one person can play. Like, you know, if you go to arcades and see people playing pinball, it's one person playing at a machine. Uh, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to have people not playing just because there aren't two players kind of thing. Right. And mm. Bushnell basically goes like, what are you guys talking about? This is the best thing that's happened to arcades. And Bally, you know, they hum and haw for a while and eventually uh, uh, Bushnell and Dabney decide like, okay, we're just going to go on our own. So they let the contract run out and they uh, incorporate as their own company, which uh, was called Atari. Um, it's a term from uh, the game Go. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, the one with the, the black and white little... Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, on the on the, the grid board, right? I never learned how to play, but I'm, I'm familiar. I tried. It's complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very tricky. Uh, Bushnell was a huge fan. Um, they actually uh, tossed around a couple other Go terms uh, as, as uh, uh, company names, but uh, that's the one that ended up sticking. Atari decided that they're going to, like they believed so strongly in Pong's success or potential success that they decided to just test it on their own. So they built a machine themselves, um, you know, paid for all the uh, the circuitry to be made up. Well, they, they did a lot of the soldering on their own. Um, the, the Like the coin op thing, just like one of the details I saw, the coins just dropped into like a milk carton that was like tacked to the inside of the of the cabinet like that's how little planning had gone into this they worried about the game and the rest of it was sort of just tossed together as quickly as possible and they put it in this local bar and basically said like can we just see what happens sort of thing like you can keep any of the money we just want to t uh, test it and the guy said okay fine very quickly it was making like 400 bucks a month or sorry 400 bucks a week uh on quarters alone jeez which is a lot of plays a week, <laughs> yeah. like a lot of plays. Um, so they built a couple more machines, tested it in a couple more locations, and it very quickly became apparent. Like it was extremely popular. People were very, very taken with Pong, and like a lot of the like a lot of the early stories are really interesting because people have never really seen you know video games before. It's a completely novel thing, and even the idea of like how to operate. An arcade machine is a little bit new. I saw a lot of stories where it was kind of like, 
a lot of the errors that they were called out for on service calls in those very, very early days. The issue was that there had been so many quarters put into it that the receptacle was overflowing and it was causing issues with the with the trigger um, that would allow you to play once a quarter had been put in. Like it wasn't triggering properly. So amazing. Yeah, it's going really, really well for them, right? So the the, the first uh, the first prototypes go out in November of 1972. Um, by the end of 1974, they had produced over 8,000 Pong cabinets. That's Jeez. that's a lot of cabinets. <laughs> yeah. They're making a lot of these things. It's going really, really, really well for them. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing extremely well. Uh, they end up uh, acquiring a company called Cyan Engineering in 1973, essentially entirely for talent to design uh, new games and build new boards because you know they can't continue doing all of this on their own it's 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 fairly involved stuff right like it's not the same as coding a game would be today you're not just doing the coding you're also designing and building physical integrated boards it's extremely involved how they make that work i honestly have no idea it's it's completely beyond me even even the code the code back then was would have been much more challenging. You know, you didn't have uh, fancy uh, compiled languages. They, they were probably uh, authoring these games in uh, an assembly-like language where the instructions were just so labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very, uh, very time-consuming. Yeah, and then and then getting the manufacturing in on top of that. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand it, but yeah, it was it was extraordinarily popular. They started making money just hand over fist on this, right? One of the problems they started finding as they started building, you know, more games and more cabinets and things like that, there's a couple of issues that are kind of inherent to um, arcade machines, uh, specifically arcade video machine, video game machines, which is that uh, number one, the newer it is, the better it's going to do. So you kind of have to keep putting out new stuff. You have to keep iterating. You can't just keep the same game all the time. But number two, sometimes games just don't go anywhere. Like sometimes they just flop, right? Other th- some games are popular. Other ones just simply aren't. The problem that that results in for the people buying the machines is they start getting a little bit hesitant to buy new stuff, right? Because they've bought that one machine that just isn't making them any money, but it still costs them the same amount. You know what right. I mean? So what they started thinking about as a possible solution to this was a type of cabinet where the cabinet itself, so, you know, the controls, the monitor, uh, even the the vast majority of the circuitry inside would be standardized, but the actual game itself would be um, readable off of memory so that you could have an arcade cabinet that you could change out the game inside it without having to sell a whole new cabinet. Sounds great. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But what they realize after they start working on this a little bit and looking at what else is out there in the market is that what they've essentially designed here is a home console just in an arcade cabinet. And, you know, there's a little bit of... uh, 
hesitance toward, you know, from parents specifically towards letting their kids spend a ton of time in arcades. They can also, you know, be pricey because the whole point of those games is to take as many quarters from kids as possible. Um, They realize there's a little bit of an opportunity there to basically take this technology that they're working on miniaturize it and sell it to people at home so you can basically say look the game's going to be expensive but you're paying it all up front and then you own it you can play it as many times as you want and they're kind of counting on number one the convenience of the console being in the home and number two the parents doing a little bit of math on all those quarters they've been giving out every weekend to realize this might actually not be the worst value proposition they, they started dipping their toes into the home market with sort of dedicated consoles so in 1976 they started selling a home version of pong this was an attempt to work on like the miniaturization aspect of it so this is still going to be like a fully integrated circuit in a box but it's a much smaller box than they had been selling to the arcades um it's also helping them work on hooking up to tvs and like all these other little like technological problems that need to be worked out before you have something uh resembling a modern console but they're working away at it. And the home version of Pong is extremely popular. Very, very popular. They need funds, though, to work on the uh, uh, to work on the console because console development is extremely expensive. We'll talk a bit more about this later, but I mean, the pricing and availability of circuitry in the late 70s, even compared to like the mid 80s, um, it's just a it's just a point in history where that stuff is growing so quickly that it's significantly more expensive when they're developing the Atari than it will be towards the end of the Atari life cycle. They just need a lot of funds behind it. They decide to shop the company around. Actually, by by this point, uh, you know, creative differences, just you know, different goals and things like that. Dabney had actually left the the company slightly earlier, so Bushnell starts shopping it around see if they can make some extra money and they end up selling atari or or overall ownership of atari to warner communications uh, as in like warner brothers the the massive media conglomerate they sell for (laughs) they sell for 28 million dollars which is a pretty decent turnaround for four years in business like they're doing okay um this is going to be extremely important to the next few years uh, 1977, they managed to get the Atari home console out. Uh, at the time, it would have been called the uh, uh, the Atari VCS video console system. This is what we would call retroactively today the the Atari 2600. It's it's the Atari you would think of when you think of the the home game system. You know, it's got the the joystick with the one button. It's got fake wood paneling for some reason. I guess because it's the 70s. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the it's the Atari. Um, I've definitely played some Atari in my days. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever actually t- touched like a real Atari. Um, played plenty of the games on emulators and things like that, but I, I yeah, I don't know if I've ever played with that that controller. Never owned one, but I had a roommate in school who busted one out, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we had a, a great time on, on an old tube TV playing some Atari games. Nice. So, launches in 1977, huge success, very popular. 1978, uh, Warner decides that uh, they're not entirely happy with the way that the company has been going. Um, Not so much on the, uh, you know, making money side of things, but more on the actual like day-to-day operation. It's kind of hard in retrospect to tell how much of this is just it was the 70s and how much of this is, you know, 
arguably Atari is one of the one of the earliest like Silicon Valley like startup culture companies, but mm. it was famous for its party attitude or its party atmosphere, like <laughs> like a lot of drugs, a lot of parties, a lot of like company meetings that are at uh, Bushnell's home, you know, in the hot tub, you know, stuff like that. And there's very much like an air of like all those engineers that they brought over from Cyan, they kind of in, in a certain way got a little bit lucky with those guys because they were engineers, but they were also like extremely creative people. And they ended up doing a lot of different jobs, like individually, each of them. So you have guys who are able to both build integrated circuits from scratch and actually design fun games you know, design the art in games, uh, the music, those are all like very disparate skills that they are. (laughs) These guys were able to pull it off and, and they were putting out games that people were really enjoying. And it was kind of this whole, well, if we don't have these guys, the company falls apart, so we better keep them happy. So they never really were doing a whole lot to, you know, I don't know, ask them to wear shoes once in a while. Like, it's not like, it's it's not like they were just like being really uptight about things it was it was very very loose at atari at the time so warner isn't terribly fond of this reputation it's interesting this is a side note but like it's interesting how much i kind of assumed that the like silicon valley startup culture was a relatively recent thing like i always very much associated with google maybe yahoo that's apparently not true at all. This whole idea of like, you know, show up whenever you want, uh, substance use on the premises, uh, parties on the premises, all of that stuff. Like that is all extremely familiar when you're looking at Atari in this, uh, in this particular era, a lot of the stuff that you would, yeah. A lot of the stuff that you would uh, like associate with that whole, you know, I like I didn't hear about them having a fire pole, but like it wouldn't surprise me either. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Catered lunches, all of that stuff. And with sort of the same goals in mind, right? Like keep the engineers happy. They're the ones that keep this place running. Um, right. Also, you know, word gets around about the parties and then good people want to come work for Atari. Like it's also uh, it's 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 partially retention. It's also partially attraction. Right. That's all Bushnell. He's he's. He's the one that wants that, uh, that atmosphere going. Warner is less happy about that. Warner is a big company. It is an old company. And, uh, you know, especially compared to, uh, Atari significantly more conservative in its, um, uh, expectations, uh, for professionalism, I suppose. All right. It's tricky though, because they do also own like a fairly large, uh, music label, Right. So they have some experience working with, you know, creative talent, but video games are so new that they're really having a hard time understanding how to sort of put these engineers in a box. Like they're not pop stars, but they're also not <laughs> just, you know, technicians. And it's sort of like they're, they're really having a hard time uh, managing the, the, the corporate culture, I suppose. And so they decide in, in 1978 to bring in a guy named Ray Kassar. Ray Kassar is originally brought in for marketing purposes. Um, one of the trickiest parts of working with Atari up to that point was just figuring out how to get 
like how to explain to people what this product was, right? Like when something is that new, marketing is so key because if people don't know what it is, they're not necessarily going to know whether or not they want to buy it. You know what I mean? Right, right. So Kassar is brought in for marketing and he immediately butts heads with Bushnell. Uh, the two of them do not see eye to eye. Kassar wants to basically turn the Atari console into like a mature product. He sees it as very similar to, say, a record player. It is sort of agnostic. And he sees the games themselves as being like the product that's most important here. But even then, he's again coming from like a pop music background. He doesn't necessarily see a need to like innovate in games. He sees a need to put out consistent levels of quality, even if that's not necessarily like the highest levels of quality, as long as you can get like a fairly guaranteed return on each game that you put out. Right. Bushnell hated this. And remember, he's actually coming from, uh, uh, you know, that arcade background where he's seen that need for constant innovation, constant novelty. Right. And he's warning not only Kassar, but higher ups at Warner that like you can't just keep selling the same games for the same system over and over. Uh, it's it's just not going to work out. You need continued innovation or people are going to get Board, they're going to move on. You also need to be really careful about market saturation. So you can keep selling consoles up to a certain point where nobody else is going to want consoles. At that point, if you want to continue selling the hardware end of uh, a console, you need a new console. They didn't really listen to him at this point. And there was a bit of a, I don't know, there's a bit of a blow up between the two where basically Bushnell made some uh, some predictions about game sales slowing way down. Kassar said they were going to pick up. His marketing uh, tactics paid off well enough that they did in fact pick up. And the executives at Warner kind of went, well, Bushnell clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's go with Kassar's uh, uh, strategies here. Um, right. Even though like long term, Bushnell was probably the one that was more right about it. You know, looking back at the, the history of the of the industry, right? Knowing what we know now. Yeah. Yeah. So Kassar f starts focusing on things to sell the consoles like uh, celebrity endorsements. Um, movie tie-ins start at this point in time. Like one of the earliest movie tie-ins is for uh, the 1978 Superman movie. Uh, there's a there's an Atari game based on it. And so they're, they're getting into like, you know, paying uh, licensing fees to work with uh, with big franchises and, and try and get sales off the back of that. Right. Which is, again, something that you are going to continue to see in in video games. This is really where it starts is with Atari. Not everything is going great, though. There's a few major missteps that the company is making. One of the biggest ones is that as big or as, as important as those engineers are to the company, they don't ever get credit in the games that they sell. So if you've worked on an Atari game, your name doesn't go into it anywhere. Uh, the programmers right. the programmers wanted their names printed in the back of the, the manual. Kind of like credits for anything else. You know, you, you work on a you work on an album or you work on a movie, you get credited. But Atari was concerned that if their names got out there, they would get poached by other companies. Uh, those those innocent pre-internet days. 
Yeah, because how could you find out who worked on this? The programmers, on the other hand, were looking for some level of recognition. It seems like the culture sort of attracted a lot of people with um, healthy egos, I suppose you could say, um, <laughs> from 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 what I've seen. Um, yeah. And they started kind of chafing against this whole problem. So one one of the one of the more fun ways that they do this is they start like including their their uh, uh, initials or even their full names in the games hidden away as Easter eggs somewhere. And if you do exactly the right thing that the execs are never going to actually find, but players might, you might see the name of the programmer of the game. Right. The uh, the less fun way that this starts, uh, you know, kind of playing out is that some of these programmers are so upset by this that they end up just leaving the company. And starting their own. In, in, in 1979, four programmers actually leave Atari together. Uh, these four programmers together are responsible for about 60% of the game sales. So they are four oh. of their best programmers. Uh, they all leave together and they form a little company. It's called Activision. <laughs> and Wait, Activision's that old? Yeah. Activision was founded in 1979. It was founded by disgruntled Atari programmers. Huh. Yeah. And because, number one, the Atari has absolutely nothing even remotely resembling, um, you know, anti-piracy technology. And because they've worked on those games from start to finish, because in those days you did everything, um, they knew enough about the Atari's, you know, internal circuitry. They knew enough about how to program those games that they were able to just start programming their own Atari games and pay nothing to Atari for them. Uh, There are, of course, lawsuits, but I mean, there's only so much that Atari is able to do to stop them from making these games because they're not technically circumventing any sort of copyright protection. Because there isn't any. Right. Uh, So yeah, as soon as they get to a point where they're able to produce cartridges that will be read by an Atari, which is, again, not terribly hard if you know what you're doing at that point in time. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but these are very, very smart people. Once you've got that production capability, it's just a matter of having the talent to build the games, and these guys did. It's not the only time that programmers leave. There are going to be a number of other companies that are formed in the same way. There's also companies that aren't directly linked to Atari, that just straight up commit like corporate espionage to learn enough about the uh, internal systems to um, program their own games. All of a sudden, pirated games, I guess sort of um, bootleg games, I've seen them referred to, become a bit of a problem for, uh, for Atari because before this, they had monopoly on not only the systems, but also the games themselves. It starts really eating into their bottom line. The biggest problem with all these different companies, though, is that a lot of them are making kind of bad games. I mean, if you're getting an Activision game, probably good. If you're getting one from one of these random, like, you know, bought the specs for an Atari off of the black market or whatever, they're not good because, like, you know, number one, hard, you know, good games are hard to make. Number two, I'm not sure people really necessarily appreciated uh you know the idea of game design at that point in time from a manufacturing perspective video games were growing so quickly that it's very much seen as like 
an investment industry. You have like a lot of venture capitalists who are pumping money into this industry because, you know, when you think of the, 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 the metrics of scale here, a video game in this era would go for about $35, which with inflation is around a hundred bucks. And they all went for that money, that amount of money, and they did not go on sale. And, you know, there's that there's that kind of joke that goes around the Internet once in a while about like, you know, uh, you know, parents or grandparents buying like a knockoff console and thinking it's the real thing. That's still a thing now. Like, imagine when video games like home video games are less than a decade old. How do you explain to your parents that like the game that you want has to come from like Atari specifically and like, no, not that one, you know, no, that right. one's a knockoff. This one is bad. This other one is good. People don't know. They have no concept of, of how to differentiate those things. And Atari's doing nothing to def- differentiate them. Everything about their packaging is easily replicable. Um, the, cons- uh, the, the cartridges themselves, same thing. So what you get is a whole bunch of like really bad games coming out and people not necessarily understanding that it's not an Atari game when they get a bad game, but blaming Atari for it because they're playing it on an Atari console. So that starts hurting the brand. You also get a lot of other consoles start entering the market around 1981 or so. Consoles that you may never have heard of, like Fairchild Channel F, uh, the Odyssey 2, the uh, Vectrex, the Emerson Arcadia 2001, um, (laughs) the Intellivision you've probably heard of. Intellivision I know. And ColecoVision you've probably heard of. That one I know as well, yeah. By uh, 1981, there were 15 different home consoles on the market. That's too many consoles. Yeah. And there's only so many people that want to play video games. There aren't enough slices of the pie to go around at this point. Atari's market share is still very large, but like the crowding is still like a real problem. So they go from like... 80% 80% market share in 1981 of consoles sold in North America uh, to by 1982, they're down to about 40%. And that's just pure volume. They're by far the biggest one. It's just there's 14 other players on the market. You also get competitors who have set up uh, consoles who are a- or which are able to play Atari 2600 games because, again, oh, you don't have that copying protection. It's a real mess, like a real mess. Uh, In 1982, Atari releases the 5200, which is a new console, um, finally trying to do something to differentiate themselves on the market. And it's, uh, you know, higher tech than the 2600. It's better graphics, can do more things. It's not backwards compatible which means that it can't play video games from the Atari 2600. And there are a lot of people out there who have an Atari 2600 and a bunch of games for it. They're not particularly happy about the idea of paying for a new console that can't play the games they already have. Yep. This is a game. I mean, this is a problem that plagues console gaming to this day, right? Like that's the first, it's the first question that that comes out as soon as a new console is, is announced. Is this backwards compatible? Um, and it's understandable why, right? Like you don't want to have to hang on to old consoles just to play old games. And anyways, it's, it's a whole mess, but again, in an emergent market with a brand new technology and a brand new sector, this is the first time people have even considered the idea that like, wait, what do you mean my Atari 
can't play Atari games. Like it just doesn't really like people haven't learned what that means, like what that is. Right. It's a new concept. It's a very yeah. new concept. So people like the 5200 uh, crashes hard. Like they do not do well. I mean, to be fair, they sell like a million copies or a million consoles eventually, but it's nothing compared to the, the market share of the 2600. Um, and it's largely hurt by this backwards compatibility issue because not only are they selling a, a console that can't play their own games, but their competitors are selling consoles that can also play their games. So, you know, the question there is kind of like, well, okay, if ColecoVision can play Coleco games and Atari games, then why can't this Atari machine play other Atari games? It's just a real bad look. So we get to March of 1982 and Atari releases a game that really finally breaks consumers' confidence in their uh, quality assurance, basically. Um, they finally put out a game so bad that they're not willing to trust that any game put out by Atari is definitely going to be good. And that game uh, is Pac-Man. Pac-Man was uh, originally uh, an arcade game put out by Namco. And they got the rights to putting out Pac-Man. Atari did, sorry. Um, but the thing is, by the time you get to 1980, uh, the level of programming that can go into a very large arcade machine is much more sophisticated than what you have going on in the Atari 2600. And right. so what you can do with the programming on Pac-Man, which by the way is, is a massive sensation. Like it's hard to overstate how popular Pac-Man was. I mean, there's, they they were making songs about Pac-Man. Like <laughs> they called it Pac-mania. Like it, it was ridiculously popular. So Atari secures the rights to put it out. This is kind of a similar thing to like their licensing deals that they're doing with movies and stuff, right? Make a game about a right. thing people already know and it'll sell well. And that was the thought with Pac-Man, right? They're, they're advertising this as you no longer have to go to the arcade to play Pac-Man. You can play it at home. They couldn't really replicate Pac-Man using Atari technology. It just wasn't good enough. You had, uh, you know, it didn't look the same. There were less colors. Uh, the ghosts behaved differently. The maze was smaller. Like, it didn't have the sounds, which I would argue is potentially the most important part of Pac-Man. Yep, very fair. You know, it, it's it's it, it's way up there if it's not the most important part. Um, you know, on, on Atari, he didn't make the waka 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 sound. Like, he just didn't. So people got mad. <laughs> And I kind of can't blame them. Um, but it really showed the limitations of the technology. And it also, you know, really rattled uh, consumer uh, uh, confidence in Atari as a brand. So 1982 just kind of continues to spiral out of control a little bit. Uh, they get the rights to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was released in 1981. And uh, they spend, you know, about six months, which is about typical for game development for Atari, turning uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark into like an adventure game. And that's going to come out in November or so of, uh, of 1982. And it's going to be really, really well received. But even before it comes out, they show the game to Steven Spielberg because they need like part of the deal for the licensing is that they need his sign off on the game, which is kind of a yeah. wild concept. 
Yeah. I think part of that is just like his own like interest in it, but also part of that is just Spielberg being like thorough, right? But he he really liked the Raiders of the Lost Ark game. He thought it was really cool. One of the things that's that makes Raiders a good game is that there's a lot of set pieces in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark that make for good action sequences that can kind of be distilled down to very simple video games like at an Atari graphics level, right? Like there's a lot of really uh, iconic moments in those movies that you can turn into um, into a video game, right? Well, Spielberg has another movie coming out in uh, June of 1982, which is E.T. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to introduce E.T. Like it's, it's, it's such an important and culturally relevant movie that I sort of feel like you've probably all seen E.T. And if you haven't, you should probably go watch E.T. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful it, movie. It depends on how many like quite young listeners you have, which which you might. Uh, I mean, even then, like, I, I you know, I, I, I feel like you don't have to be that old. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it. But like still, it's it's a it's a really good movie. It's also kind of hard to overstate its popularity in uh, the culture in 1982. Um, keep in mind, like even the, just like the concept of the blockbuster is like less than 10 years old, right? Like that summer blockbuster coming out that everyone sees that everyone talks about that breaks box office, office records, all of that. Like that really starts with Jaws in 1975, right? Like it's not, it, it is similarly to the, the video game industry, a relatively new cultural phenomenon. And it's still new enough that like, it's very, very fresh, Right. Um, you also have a less saturated movie market. So literally everyone is seeing E.T. And E.T. is very different from Raiders in that there aren't really a lot of those set piece action moments. Like there's a couple, but in, not in the same way where it's like you can make a good, uh, you know, video game level out of it necessarily. Um, maybe the bike chase. And other than that, I, I, I don't know. It's 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 a very emotionally dependent movie it's not about the it's not about the action yeah yeah so spielberg he liked what he'd seen with raiders he figured sure we can try another video game tie-in he figures it's going to make a lot of money but the trouble there is he wants it released for that christmas season to capitalize on that freshness right like on that familiarity because he figures if it waits until 1983 it's going to be past its window of opportunity and like yeah they'll still sell some but maybe not as many et by the way i don't know if you knew this uh it's so popular that it beat the box office records for star wars um which were massive right had been set in 77 but star wars ran for i don't know like a year and a half something like that uh pretty much constantly in theaters. Uh, E.T.'s record wasn't broken until Jurassic Park in 1993. Oh, jeez. Yeah. A lot of people see E.T. And a lot of people really, really love E.T. So Atari goes, okay, well, our sales have been slumping. All these other competitors are selling cartridges. All these other competitors are selling uh, consoles. This is going to be the thing that turns things around for us. And I mean... In terms of like turning things around, they're still doing well in 1982. In 1982, they post uh, $1.7 billion in operating profit. Billion. Atari alone. They're making tons of money. But they're, yeah. worried, they're worried about the stiff competition because it's getting harder and harder to fight the rest of these guys. And so they're going, well... E.T. Like, it's a slam dunk. Like, it's the same thing as when, you know, those Star Wars movies are coming out and you get, like, 
oranges with Star Wars branding for some reason because it's like, well, I guess it'll they'll buy our oranges now. It's got it's got Darth Vader on it or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's just everywhere. So they agree to spend twenty two million dollars on the licensing rights alone for ET, but it's conditional on them turning around the game by Christmas of nineteen eighty two. And if you work back the distribution channels to all the retailers, if you work back the production channels, uh, all the way back to where they're talking right now, if you work everything out, Atari has five weeks to make this game when they usually do it in five to six months. So they give it to one of their programmers, a guy named Howard Scott Warshaw, uh, who's done really good work before, including the, the work on Raiders. Uh, and basically say, hey, can you do this in five weeks? And he went, yeah, no problem. I got this. <laughs> and he bangs out what is widely considered one of the worst games of all time. <laughs> but Atari is banking so hard on those licensing deals and on that familiarity and on the popularity of E.T. that they, it's not even the fact that the game is bad. It's the fact that they preemptively produce five million cartridges of E.T., figuring that they should be able to sell them no problem. The market is not selling 5 million of anything at this point in time. Like anything. The projections that Atari is making for the 1982 uh, season overall is close to 200% of what their actual sales are going to be. They're way overextended. They produce 5 million cartridges. They sell only 1.5 million of them. And of those 1.5 million, most of which are given kids on Christmas morning in 1982, of those 1.5 million, possibly as many as 1 million of those were returned based on complaints of how bad the game was. I, I think the badness of the game needs to be understood in like the, con the context of like how beloved the movie E.T. was and just like the gap of fondness. <laughs> that exists between the movie and the game you know atari has put out bad games before and people have bought them and even kept them but they weren't supposed to be like they weren't promising like a return to that experience of watching the movie et and this one was mm. cartridges cost a lot of money to make and um not selling as many as 4.5 million of them is extremely costly for the company. Uh, so as early as December of 1982, they're ringing alarm bells. Like this is, you know, just letting investors know it might not be as much growth as last quarter. Just, just a heads up, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not, it's not just ET though. Like that's the thing about this story, right? Like there's a lot of bad decisions being made. E.T. isn't the only one that they're massively overproducing cartridges on and then, you know, running into storage issues. Basically, every game that was produced in 1982 was overproduced. They had uh, asked their retailers to commit to orders for the Christmas season at the beginning of 1982 and then base their projections on those without actually asking their retailers to sign contracts committing to those sales. And so as they as these retailers bought cartridges from other companies, they canceled their orders with Atari and Atari is going like, I thought we had a sure thing here. 
and they just ended up with more and more overstock and less and less sales and it got really really bad really quickly so there's that just weighted down with dead inventory right uh right the 5200 had been functionally for them a flop that new console that wasn't actually able to play any of their old games um their arcade division which still existed uh, arcade sales were just waning like arcades weren't doing nearly as well anymore and honestly their dealers were really tired of working with them and not even necessarily because it was atari although some of their business practices were kind of pushy i mean asking people to commit to orders uh you know three quarters in advance is kind of kind of a lot yeah but it's also having to deal with all these angry parents, right? Who are not necessarily going to understand the intricacies of the video game market, but are definitely going to take it out on uh, shop owners when their kids are unhappy about the $100 game they just bought. So everybody's pretty unhappy here. They go from, Atari goes from making nearly $2 billion in 1982. Uh, in 1983, they end up actually losing a little bit short of half a billion dollars it's it's somewhere in like the 400 million dollar range right uh they're forced to lay off about 80 percent of their staff uh they have to dump uh significant portions of their inventory which is where the et cartridge buried in alamogordo new mexico thing comes in that isn't like a we're so ashamed of et we're gonna bury it in the desert thing that's a well, it's cheaper to throw this away and cancel our lease on these warehouses move. Right. Which is not something a healthy company does. No. But here we are. It's not a healthy company. <laughs> it comes out in 1983 as well that Ray Kassar sold a sizable portion of his Warner stocks. Uh couple days before some very negative announcements about atari's performance came out yeah so he was charged by the sec yeah and fired which again like i mean that's what you do in that situation and that's not necessarily atari the company's fault but it doesn't help public perception of atari either right here's another fun fact about atari in 1983 they nearly had they nearly had a deal to distribute a brand new console out of Japan called the Famicom. The Famicom from Nintendo is the Japanese name for uh, the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Arguably one of the most famous consoles of all time. I think that's fair, right? Sorry, it was it was shopped to Atari. Yeah, it was shopped to. It wasn't just shopped to Atari. There were contracts in place to distribute here's what happened remember we've got relatively separate arcade divisions and console divisions right when atari set up this deal with nintendo to distribute the famicom there's some exclusivity stuff involved there right like they didn't want to be in a place where they were selling nintendo products but somehow other competitors were getting nintendo games or something like that right like if they were going to sell nintendo stuff they wanted to be the only ones because they're in a market where exclusivity is completely gone out the window yeah and they're trying to salvage any any measure of that right so there are exclusivity deals in place and they're about to finalize the whole thing but 
then they find out that ColecoVision is demoing one of their brand new home computers. It's a personal computer. They're demoing this home computer using a copy of Donkey Kong that they're running on that computer. And Atari goes, whoa, 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 hold up. How come ColecoVision can run Donkey Kong? That's a Nintendo product and we have exclusivity. And ColecoVision says, well, we actually do have the rights to Donkey Kong. And the reason for that is ColecoVision, or sorry, rather Coleco, had been the North American distributor for Donkey Kong arcade cabinets. So they had taken the the code from the cabinets and were running it on their PC to demonstrate how powerful it was. Uh, Okay, yep. Nintendo says, well, they're not really supposed to be doing that. They only have the arcade version. So we'll talk to them about it. But our exclusivity deal is still good, actually. Don't worry about it. And Atari got all huffy about it because, again, exclusivity is a sore point for them at at this specific point in time. And the deal ends up falling through. They call it off. Crazy. So we could have had the Atari Entertainment System. Yeah. We were very, very close, like extraordinarily close. And honestly, if they had just sort of gone, you know what? It's fine. Tell ColecoVision to cut it out. You know, we'll let it go and we'll we'll make this thing work. Atari could have been okay, maybe. Yeah. North America could have had the NES three years earlier, maybe. Uh, but they didn't. A couple of people got really upset about it. The market was was what it was and uh the deal goes through so 1982 1.7 billion dollars operating profit 1983 400 million dollars in losses uh their stock slips from 60 dollars to 20 dollars uh it is a completely it's a complete write-off the company is a write-off it's basically sold for parts like warner vision gets rid of bits and pieces of it it's renamed it's reformed into you know the software division versus the uh, arcade division um and yeah it's kind of the end of atari i mean not really they continue selling consoles they continue selling games they continue developing games um they continue working on arcade stuff but the market has as we talked about at the beginning of the the show the market has crashed by 97 percent. they're just not really making anything People aren't buying video games anymore. So the sector essentially remains depressed until Nintendo finally introduces the NES in 1986. And that's the story of the crash, at least from the perspective of specifically the company Atari, which, you know, plays a pretty significant part in all of this. But if we want to look at this from sort of a very like on the ground, you know, if we're talking history, like a basically a great man theory of history, like individual people making decisions that have big rippling effects. These are the people, right? Like Ray Kassar mismanaging his funds at the end, you know, um, Bushnell getting edged out of the company, all of this stuff, you know, the, the, the programmers who leave to form Activision, all of this stuff is like very individual decisions that have big, like massive uh, repercussions in terms of like dollar value. Not to mention, you know, culturally speaking, it's really interesting to see how a couple of missteps could have, if they had been corrected, would have made for a very, very different uh, situation in the long term. So that's the story. 
we'll take a break here, I think. But when we come back, we'll uh, I, I have three other ways actually of looking at this and, and we'll fit it all into the second half. But I have three other ways of looking at this whole uh, issue that I think bring uh, a little bit different perspective than what we've gone over so far. Sounds great. Back on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, what? where's the history in all this, right? We just talked about, you know, a bunch of very, very specific individual people making sometimes good, sometimes terrible decisions in a very specific company, a very specific industry in one specific year. Uh, what does that have to do with history? And you know what? Fair. Fair play. But what I wanted to do with this is uh, kind of each time we revisit it, kind of zoom out one more level and talk about different things. Just again, as I mentioned the first time, to kind of get an idea of what sort of complexity can go into tying a specific narrative to a specific event, right? Because at this point, it's pretty easy to look at this and be like, listen, they mismanaged this company into the ground. They shouldn't have overordered cartridges. You know, Rekasar shouldn't have been, uh, you know, uh, insider trading, uh, that kind of thing, right? That's easy. But what if it wasn't necessarily Atari's fault that the industry collapsed? Um, so uh, let's let's talk about this a little bit more from like a like a tech history perspective, right? Because we've done that on the show before. In fact, we just did a, a, an episode on uh, aviation history, which is entirely a tech uh, history topic, right? So let, let's talk a little bit about where North American consumer electronics were at this point in time. Um, if you think back uh, when Bushnell was originally working on those first cabinets with Ted Dabney, back in the very early 70s, what they wanted to do was take and put a actual computer into one of these cabinets and set it up to, you know, pay to play and things like that. The thinking there being that you could reprogram them if need be. But the problem, as it turned out, was using uh, an integrated circuit to design these games was much faster and much cheaper than actually putting a computer in there which is funny with today's lens right it's very very strange you would think that you know looking at it today having a programmable uh board in there that can read different programs is going to make a lot more sense uh and in fact most of the the arcade machines that you would see today are some variation on that unless you're like a hardcore retro uh collector right like those those guys are those guys are hand soldering their own transistors in there and stuff. But uh, beyond that niche, no, you're just looking at a computer and a computer screen, right? Part of the reason that that calculus had been made is something that's known as Moore's Law, which I know you're familiar with, right? So you can tell us all about it. Oh, yeah. What's the original? Do you remember the original uh, specific case for what Gordon Moore was talking about when he proposed Moore's Law in 1965? I don't. You're asking me to uh, <laughs> call upon my education from uh, way too many years ago. So what's the general sense? Well, the general stance is that from a certain point where computing technology was introduced, uh, integrated circuits were going to double the amount of transistors that were included within them roughly every two years. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, that is the original sense. A lot of people will, will point to memory when they talk about Moore's Law, right? Or, or processor speed. And specifically what he was saying was that in the same area, we're going to be able to double the number of transistors that you can get into an integrated circuit, which is a very specific thing to be talking about. But 
essentially what he's saying is that circuits are going to become smaller and smaller and also cheaper to make every two years. Uh, originally, he actually said every year, but he revised that fairly early on. And what does that mean functionally for what we're talking about here? Well, when Atari was founded, an integrated circuit, So, and, and when we say an integrated circuit, we're talking about rather than like creating a processor that can read a program, you're kind of hard wiring like with with physical pathways on a circuit a program and it's going to only be able to execute that one thing and uh, you know back in those days like you you literally have like human beings soldering transistors capacitors uh, resistors onto a board it was very very manual but as production became better and cheaper and smaller about every two years in general circuits became better and cheaper to produce. And it starts kind of sneaking up on the consumer electronic side of things in about 1977 or so, which is really sort of when the the Atari 2600 is originally released, right? And remember, the 2600 was basically working entirely with uh, integrated circuits. It's not a processor uh, unit. Right. That same year, we get the release of three different brands of personal computers. You get the Apple II, released by Apple, obviously, the PET 2001 by Commodore, and the TRS-80, which is the, the Tandy Radio Shack computer. And I don't know about you, I always had the sense that personal computers were like really expensive, like very, very expensive up until like maybe the mid 90s kind of thing where they finally yeah. sort of got to a point where it became reasonable for a large number of people to have one in their home. Um, you know, hence the rise of the computer room and all that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, it turns out that's not actually the case. They were relatively, you know, low-powered, but you could get a personal computer for a relatively low price starting in the late 70s. Um, when the Apple II released, it was only $500. Okay, yeah, yeah. With inflation adjustment, that's just over $2,000 today. Now, that's not, right. you know, that, that's not like a, an impulse buy, sure, for most people. But it's also not like as expensive as I was expecting it to be. I had this impression that like in the early 80s, you were looking at the equivalent of like four or $5,000 for a personal computer. I would have thought that as well, yeah. Yeah, Um Apple II is probably the most famous of the three that I mentioned here, but by far the most reasonably priced and widest distributed one is uh, the TRS-80 out of Radio Shack. It's $399, which is about $1,700 today, um, which again is in, in pretty reasonably priced territory. A lot of people, like if you're buying a MacBook these days, you're spending way more than that. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's not like it, like it's in the it's in the ballpark, right? And then it's distributed by Radio Shack. So the other two, you would have to go to like a specialty store to get, probably, or you would need to know where to shop for. Radio Shack at this point in time is like pretty well established in the American uh, retail space. So having one of these TRS 80s sitting in the front of a Radio Shack, and every time someone walks in, being able to see a demo of this thing, is like a pretty. Uh, attractive proposition right like that's an extremely powerful way to market it to the home uh consumer so was radio shack a manufacturer at this point or were they contracting that out 
my understanding is that they're partnered with Tandy uh, for uh, for the manufacture of these uh, uh, computers. Gotcha. So they're not manufacturing themselves, but like Radio Shack was manufacturing a lot of the parts that would go into home electronics at this point in time, right? Um, this right. is back when they were selling like useful things. Sorry, Radio Shack. <laughs> you know what I mean, though, right? Like it's that it's that you'll see it on TV every once in a while. It's the idea of like somebody actually going in there for like parts that you could use for an actual thing you know you're fixing your transistor radio or whatever so as we talked about prior to about 1980 dedicated circuits are going to be faster than processors in running programs it flips around 1980 processors become fast enough and cheap enough that you can get one that's able to be like it's able to both hit a price point and a functionality point that home users are interested in and the advantages start becoming a lot more attractive, um, especially when you're comparing it to the home console market, right? So manufacturers are trying to cut specs to fit budgets, so they're trying to get that price point down to a place where competing with uh, Atari is not that big a deal. Atari would be about 200 to 250 dollars, depending on where you're buying it in this in this era. So still cheaper than what you're looking at from Radio Shack, but not by a whole lot. And in terms of actual performance, you start getting better and better, like from specifically a video game point of view, you start getting better performance out of a computer than you would out of a console, uh, you know, between 1980 and 1982. And it's like really specific things that today maybe don't sound like the most important things to games, but like things like, for example, uh, PCs are often, they have more color options or the ways that those colors are drawn on the screen are less uh, constrictive. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked into like sprite art, like pixel art. Um, and oh, yeah. the, the way that people will sometimes do pixel art based on the constraints of like specific consoles where like you have a rule, you can only have so many colors in a, in a certain block, right? Because of the way those, uh, those consoles uh, process these images, right? All of that right. stuff is completely out the window. Computer can do whatever it wants there. Um, Often the sound is a lot better because you have, you know, removable memory uh, and writable memory. There's things that you can do, like have much bigger programs where, you know, an Atari cartridge is list, uh, limited or save your progress, which was groundbreaking for video games at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then you're also dealing with the fact that, like, you know, you can also use these pro these computers for other things. <laughs> than just play games um you can use them for word processing you can use them for uh you know doing your taxes and things like that which i always expected to actually be the other way around people buying these things for like utilitarian reasons and then you know realizing they can play games on them nah from what i've seen it's <laughs> mostly people wanting to play games and realizing you can do other stuff <laughs> It's, it's, you know, we can get into all sorts of stuff. Uh, for example, even like floppy disks uh, or the cassettes that they sometimes use are a lot cheaper to manufacture than a cartridge, right? Because there's just a lot less material in there and you're not actually building the circuit inside the cartridge. So you can just sell games for a lot less. There are magazines dedicated to basically printing out the code to program your own games in really simple uh, programming languages like basic. So you would get a, a magazine once a month and you could flip to a section and it'd be like, just copy this, you know, character for character. And there'll be a little game that you can play as opposed to Atari selling everything for a hundred dollars. 
there's a lot of stuff going for it. Atari wasn't blind to the fact that the PC was really eating into their market share. Um, they actually attempted to enter uh, the PC market with a, a personal computer called the Atari 400. Uh, it was priced at 349, which is like a little over $900. <laughs> like it's 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 getting more and more reasonable as we go, right? Right. But in 1982, Commodore adds the Commodore 64, which is arguably one of the most famous PCs of all time. It's certainly one of the highest selling PCs of all time. Had one. Did you? Yeah. Interesting. What, uh, what can you tell me about the Commodore 64? I've seen them. I've never actually messed around with one. It, it, it was, it was years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was, you know, what, okay. Now I got to know what year did the Commodore 64? It came, it came out in 82. Uh, okay, they, that's before I was born. But, so, but they would have uh, sold it for a lot longer than that. Like they they kept right. They kept that around for a long time. The cycle was a, a lot longer. So I probably played it when I was you know six or seven. I, I think the most noteworthy thing about it was that even though it was like uh, a command line interface, you mm. know, this is kind of predating a lot of the user interfaces we're more familiar with today. Yeah, I think it ran DOS at the time. Exactly. Yeah. Even at that age, I found it really easy to use. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure that has something to do with the, the market share, right? Like it's, 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 I don't know, you put a piece of tech out there and it's, it's just, you know, you're, you're working in assembly or something like that. People are just not going to pick it up, right? That's not how this stuff works. Um, you have to have that usability factor. Yeah. There's a reason it was an, it was a, it was a popular piece of technology. A lot of people really latched onto that one. Um, Another thing I, I didn't mention in terms of gaming, but like also the fact that it had a, a keyboard. Keep in mind, most of the consoles at this point in time are using like a joystick and one button. Uh, the possibilities that having that many more inputs opens up for games is is massive. Uh, you see the rise of you know text-based RPGs and things like that, which are just completely impossible on something like an Atari. Um, it really opens up a lot of a lot of options for for people looking to play games. So, 1982, Commodore's released their new uh, their new computer. Texas Instruments has also er, entered the uh, the market, and they enter into this price war. Uh, both of them have decided that the other one is their biggest competition, and they want to control the market. And so, the way that they're going to do this is just price each other out to a point where one of them just exits the market, or goes out of business, or whatever. They just want to be the only ones selling computers, which is funny because I don't think either of them are selling computers anymore, but here we are. You get to a point, and I, I remember 1982, this is the year where, you know, ET is being created. It's the last like profitable year of Atari, all of that stuff, right? In 1982, the Commodore 64 was selling for as little as $199 in some stores. That's less than an Atari, and that's less than most yeah. other consoles. And so if yeah. you are in any way looking at the video game market in 1982, you've got, on one hand, the hot mess that is the console uh, market at this point, right? Remember, we're looking at 15 plus uh, consoles, all of the games selling for $100, most of them untrustworthy, uh, you know, rumblings of, of uh, impropriety in the, the, you know, sort of leadership of Atari. Uh, and then you look over here and Commodore is selling an extremely well-regarded piece of tech for $199 that can play games, but also you can do your homework on there. It's kind of like, well, 
I mean, like, why wouldn't you at that point? There's no advantages to buying a console there. So you mentioned uh, in the first episode that the video game market crashed uh, by was high 90s percent. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that sales of Commodore 64 did not fall into that category. Well, we're not necessarily looking at sales of the uh, PC itself in that category, but we are looking at the sale of games. Um, right. Games games do fall off in 1983. What, what ends up happening in the PC market is that um, there's this huge boom in sales because all of the PCs are so cheap, right? The reason that Commodore could produce as low uh, price as they did was that they actually owned the chip fabrication factories that were going into uh, the Commodore machines. Like they bought the entire like vertical integration um, so they could make it extremely cheap. But they were basically still bleeding money until Texas Instruments exited the market, which they finally did in 1983. But what you get in 1983 is, number one, computers have been so cheap for long enough that everyone that's really interested in it has managed to scrape together the 200 bucks to buy a Commodore 64. Number two, PCs are really, really new. Like, that's important to remember in this. And they were seen as a bit of a luxury product, right? Like kind of what we were talking about off the top, where it's kind of like, I thought they were thousands of dollars. And so perceived value is really important in industries like this. There's a little bit of a sense from consumers that it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with it? Why is it, why is it selling that cheap? Mm. There's got to be a problem because this is like revolutionary technology. Why are they just kind of dumping their stock, right? So anybody who's suspicious of it is looking at it. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being 10 years ago when they're selling iPhones for, you know, $59 or something like that, right? Like, it's sort of like, well, this, it's got to be a knockoff or something, right? Like, um, that, that can really hurt a sector like, uh, like computing. Um, perceived value is really important. Also, Commodore is ultimately really hurt by the prices that they had to set their computer at to drive Texas Instruments out of the market because uh, they're not making anything like anywhere in the in the channel, right? Like the from from chip manufacturing through to PC manufacturing and sales, everything is running at like a razor thin margin. So even though they're selling all these units, they're not actually making very much money. Mm. All they've managed to do is saturate the market with their product not really make that much money doing it, dumping a lot of money into making that happen. Remember, they had to buy all these chipset uh, uh, companies in the process. And where we're at in 1983 is that everyone who's bought a PC or everyone who's going to buy a PC has already bought one. They either need to put their prices up, which is going to be bad for them in the long run, or they need to uh, continue selling at a loss, which is also bad for them. And... Yeah, they knocked off Texas Instruments, but also the PC market crashes around the same time. Um, I see. Not yeah. as not as hard as what you see in consoles, um, but it's just it, it's more of a saturation issue than it is necessarily a uh, mismanagement issue the way uh, it is in the in the consoles. And I mean, they had saturation issues too, but it's sort of like, well, why would anyone buy a PC? They've already got one, kind of thing. Yeah, it's not. Uh... It's not like today where a piece of technology might get 
uh, outdated so quickly that you feel the need to update it. Yeah. And I mean, there was still a, an element of that. It's just, it's also so early on that the gains that you see from going, you know, like the me- the memory is just like, it's like the, the gains you see from going from like four kilobytes of memory to eight kilobytes of memory is like, okay, uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily worth an up- uh, upgrade, right? Um, it's, it's not really the, the, the consumer hasn't locked onto that, uh, that upgrade cycle yet. So where we end up in consumer electronics is that this PC race, this, this, uh, attempt by mainly Commodore, but, but other players to get the personal computer into as many homes as possible. It hurts the personal computer market, but it also hurts the uh, console market indirectly, right? Anyone who's looking to buy, like if you if you are looking for video games in 1982 and you don't actually own anything yet, and you're just weighing your options, and you're even the remotest bit informed on your options, you're probably not going to be looking at dedicated video game machines yet, right? Because there's no there's no uh, there's no strong incentive to stick with a console over a personal computer. But the personal computer market is also uh, taking hard hits because of, you know, larger forces in just, uh, you know, getting the consumer used to that cycle. Um, So the PC uh, game market ends up being depressed as well because of all of this. Like it's a little bit better off than what you see development uh, in the console market to be um, because, you know, it's a little easier to get your games out there, but you're not seeing games on the like on the scale of what you would see for consoles, because it's a lot harder to sell uh, a $35, you know, equivalent of a hundred dollar PC game, right? It's seen as a cheaper option. Like that's part of the, the allure of it. And that makes it less uh, attractive to develop for. And so, yeah, you're going to see PC gaming as a bit of like a bastion of gaming for uh, the next couple of years until the NES comes out. But, it's also kind of segregated to a more niche market because of all of that. So in that light, you can sort of see where like, yeah, Atari had their own stuff going on. But if you look at the wider consumer market, there's other forces that are happening here that are just sort of against Atari, right? It's possible that if the Atari had been created earlier in the development of, um, you know, the microchip, I suppose, um, it might've had a better fighting chance. Or if uh, uh, Moore's Law didn't uh, turn over every two years as quickly as it does, it might have had a better chance. But it just happened to come up at about the same intersection of time where um, you know having a, a, an actual computer in the home becomes relatively affordable for a number of reasons. Kind of a different story from, uh, from the last one, eh? Yeah, very. Um, let's zoom out again and start over. This section... I usually try to put headings on my on my notes um, just to keep myself oriented. This might have my favorite heading of of any note title I've ever made, and it's uh, this this section is called uh, the arcade and the morality of gaming. <laughs> I every once in a while I, I I say something on this show, and before I say it, I know that somebody's probably going to get upset with me. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyways. The more I have looked into it and the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that, especially in the United States, but in North America in general, people or society at large is sort of convinced that if someone is having a good time, they must be doing something wrong. (laughs) 
uh, yeah, I I can see that. And it's not just always like it's not it's not always it's not everything. It's just this sort of like undercurrent of like suspicion, especially with new forms of entertainment that isn't necessarily present everywhere else. Let's let's uh, let's rewind quite a bit before the seventies to get into this one because I really want to put it into a bit more context. I, I want to look at video games from a more societal level for for this section. You know, video arca- arcades really start with uh, Atari and with Pong, as we talked about in the first section, right? But the idea of like the arcade as an entertainment hall is much much older than that. You can kind of tra- uh, you can kind of uh, trace that back to like the Penny Arcade, which uh, arrives in 1905 to 1910. It's called that because most of the attractions cost a penny to view or play, and what you get in that era is this sort of, um, you get these entertainment halls with various different machines that are just there for amusement. Like it's nothing complicated. A lot of it looks sort of like what you would think of as a carnival game today. Uh, so you would have attendance kind of setting up games and things like that for people, but they also try to automate it as much as possible because the more you can automate, the more money you can take from people without actually having to have a, an employee there to monitor, right? Which makes sense. And it's really a mix of, you know, games of skill. So like really early pinball machines uh, would be there. You would have, uh, you know, sometimes you would have billiards or, or variations on billiards. Uh, skee-ball was really popular in the, uh, the 1910s and 1920s, uh, stuff like that. You'd also have some games of chance. So there would be slot machines here for play. And then you would also have items that are just for kind of leisure entertainment. So um, forerunners of jukeboxes, for example. Uh, Fortune-telling mm. machines were really popular. Um, you've probably seen those before, right? Like with the, the mechanical fortune teller with the with the crystal ball and it spits out a little fortune for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like in that uh, old Tom Hanks movie. Big. That's the one. Yeah, those things. Um, that's that's the area that these things come from. Uh, love testers, uh, like the grip testers, those th- kind of things that you still kind of see in like a corner of a, a movie theater every once in a while for some reason. <laughs> All of that stuff, though. These are relatively popular. People can go spend an afternoon having a good time. It's popular with families. Um, they also have these machines called mutoscopes. And these are really early... Not quite forerunners of film, more like um, side branches of film. Uh, in that they're not really that much older than like the actual cinema, but they're 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 a completely different sort of uh, machine. Essentially, what they would be is like a, a flip book sort of idea on a circular drum, and you would pay your coin and you could uh, turn a crank to look through a little slot, and one person at a time could watch uh, a very short video i suppose it's not exactly a video but you know what i mean right and there would be a little advertising poster above it to show you what you were going to see and then you would watch it and turn the crank and uh, once it got to the end it would lock in and uh, you couldn't watch it again without putting in another coin and these were extraordinarily popular a lot cheaper than cinema in most cases and you could run uh, as many mutoscopes as you had room for so you weren't just locked into whatever movie was playing that day it turns out that uh, the mutoscopes that were running, you know, semi-pornographic videos were extremely popular. Who knew? Uh, and so these mutoscopes started drawing like a lot of business, um, especially from young men. And 
just like that, uh, these these arcades, these uh, entertainment halls get an extremely bad uh, reputation for being kind of seedy and immoral, even though the vast majority of what's happening there is pretty wholesome family fun, right? But it's also the sort of thing where it's like, well, my kid could just go and pop in a penny and watch this thing. I don't want that, which is also a pretty reasonable thing to to want. Mm. Those types of mutoscopes do not stick around for long. Like we're talking about a window of less than a decade. That sort of thing moves out of the entertain or the uh, the the arcades uh, and into you know seedier establishments. Um, but sort of the damage is done in terms of entertainment halls being this place that people are just very suspicious of. They just have a feeling that it's a, a place where delinquency happens, right? Right. Idleness, all of that stuff. It's just it's just bad news. We don't want our kids dealing with it. The rise of cinema is is a big. Uh, factor in getting rid of those mutoscopes as well. Movies are simply better, and as you get sound in movies in the in the late twenties and, and things like that, uh, it, it really takes over as by far the superior um, entertainment type. But it also opens space in these uh, arcades for new types of games. Uh, around this time, though, in the in the nineteen teens, nineteen twenties, you get something uh, that's known as the uh, progressive movement. It's actually been percolating for a while. And you and I actually talked about the progressive movement quite a bit when we did an episode on prohibition uh, several years ago. At this point, right? Yep. I'm guessing you would probably need a bit of brushing up, but the pro the, the progressive movement is a weird convergence point between women who are looking for what could broadly be called women's rights at this point in time. So like the vote, but also, you know, concerns about domestic abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, things like that, uh, the sanctity of the family. So there's kind of a, a convergence between that and the, uh, the, the needs or wishes of various uh, Christian ministers who see some of these vices as being, um, you know, societal ills for, uh, spiritual reasons. And a lot of that stuff converges in like ideas of social sanitation, I suppose. There's this idea that like idleness is a bad thing and that, uh, you know, leisure leads to sinfulness and that, um, you, you know, anytime that basically you're not working, um, you're, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> And I'm, I'm very much summarizing here. There's a lot more nuance to the progressive movement than that. I also don't want to frame the progressive movement as an as a entirely unreasonable movement, given some of the advancements that were achieved uh, through activists that would identify under that movement, right? Like, it's, it's an important part of North American uh, history. It's just that sometimes they get a little bit carried away. <laughs> That movement also sees a crackdown on gambling, which again, it's it's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of understandable why people, especially who have um, had some contact with uh, gambling addictions of some sort, would just kind of see it as an overall bad thing. But the overreach on some of that uh, crackdown ends up being um, pretty substantial. So some stuff that would ne would not necessarily be considered as gambling today sort of gets caught in the sweep there, right? So gambling is outlawed basically everywhere completely for a couple of decades here. 
it's not as though they're looking to segregate gambling away from children, which I think would be, you know, most people would consider a, a fairly reasonable measure to take. It's that we can't have a slot machine anywhere, you know? Mm. You get to the Great Depression and there is some resurgence of arcades as like cheap entertainment because a lot of people don't really have a lot of options that way. But it's a very different animal at that point than what you had seen before uh, this progressive crackdown on the arcade and, and this, this reframing of the arcade as, a, as, a, as an immoral place. Electric pinball, so pinball with like actual like little lights and, you know, the, the sounds and all of that stuff is invented in 1933. It's incredibly popular. It's also immediately denounced as a form of gambling. They see it as people basically just throwing away their money on the chance that your ball might go the right place. But you're not winning anything material. Well, I mean, you could be, you know, some of them are paying out in tickets and things like that, right? Like Chuck E. Uh, Cheese style. Okay. I know. Sure. It's it's a stretch. I agree with you. Um, one thing I will say in the defense of people who are upset by pinball at this point in time is that the flipper isn't actually invented until the 40s. So there is a little bit more of a sense that it's just sort of how far you pull that back the plunger in terms of controlling the ball. Mm. It's slightly more random. I, I still don't really buy it. But again, I, I don't feel that pinball is an inherently harmful uh, game. So, you know, that's that's coloring my judgment there. Pinball is actually outlawed in New York State in 1942 as an immoral gambling device. <laughs> like to the point that the mayor of New York goes out with, uh, along with the police and they round up and smash pinball machines that they find. They smash more than 2,000 pinball machines in this like public display of anger and, and uh, rejection of pinball. Goodness. It's kind of wild. You know, the thing, though, is that all it really does is move games like slot machines and uh, pinball machines, especially into less legal places in society. Right. So, again, when we talked about prohibition, these speakeasies that people are going to to drink illegally will also have games in there. Right. Like people have other things they want to do while they drink. So yeah, people will play pinball while they're drinking at a speakeasy. They will play slot machines, which are illegal across the United States, in a speakeasy because you know why not at that point, right? Um, you're breaking the law anyways. Why not have some fun? The pinball machine will actually remain illegal in New York until 1976. What? Yeah, and it's actually a really this is this is a bit of a sidebar, but like the the way that it gets made legal is that this um oh goodness i didn't write it down there's a there's a coalition of basically game manufacturers or something to that extent right like it's an advocacy it's a gamer advocacy group colin i don't know how else to say it <laughs> yeah it, it's it's this advocacy group challenges the constitutionality of the ban on pinball machines and they take it to court and this is like, this sounds like something from a bad movie, but this really happened. They get, they go into court and they set up two pinball machines at the court and they get a pinball, uh, expert guy named Rich, uh, sorry, a guy named Roger Sharp to come in. They don't tell him which machine he's going to be playing beforehand. They bring him into court and say, okay, well, if it's not a game of chance, if it's a game of skill, like you'll be able to play one of these machines and like, you know, do better than 
control, essentially. And so Roger Sharp goes into the courtroom and starts calling his shots, Babe Ruth style, like, I'm going to hit this bumper, I'm going to hit that, and proceeds to do so. And the court is so impressed with his pinball skills (laughs) that they make pinball legal again. Oh man, I had no idea. That's fantastic. It's incredible. It's it's the like it's the dumbest story in the best sort of way, you know? <laughs> um New York isn't the only place that they were made illegal. In fact, it, I, there's there's a couple of places that are very recently removing bans against pinball from their books even though like they're not they weren't functionally uh enforced anymore. I think I saw I want to say Pennsylvania somewhere removed one in 2016 finally like it's very recent and again no one's enforcing them but like the 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 bands still exist right and this is sort of what I'm talking about when I'm saying that like any sort of new or relatively new uh form of entertainment gets like extremely suspicious or people get very suspicious about them um just don't like them start associating them with very bad things pool halls are another really great uh, example of that um there's just sort of this idea that like kids hanging out in pool halls is like what they do when they're like skipping school and like you know smoking or whatever i guess <laughs> right <laughs> well so do you do you know the do you know the musical uh the music man uh vaguely familiar so there's a there's a there's a whole subplot in there where essentially the this guy shows up in well it's it's the plot of the thing but he shows up in this town and tries to basically convince people that because the local pool hall has put in uh, pool tables with pockets, it's going to like result in like youth delinquency. Um, and there's a whole song about it. And it, like, and then the the rest of the movies, like he's trying to make them form a marching band instead. I don't know. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. It's been forever. But uh, that that song is actually what uh, the monorail song is based on from The Simpsons. Uh, the yep. whole like you know we'll we'll whip the town into a into a moral panic over something that's kind of reasonable um yeah that's that's where that comes from uh but yeah there's there's really this idea that like oh you hang out in a pool hall and next thing you know you're doing youth crimes and then you're moving up to real crimes right other places don't have this same problem for the most part um notably japan uh there's a lot of manufacturers of what you would call uh, electromechanical games. Uh, these are games that incorporate electric or electronic elements into a physical game. So we talked about a couple of them in the first part, right? Like there was a uh, periscope made by Sega. Uh, right. It's the one where it uh, simulates you looking through the periscope of a, of a submarine and, and taking out enemy uh, ships that was built in 1966. Uh, you know, Namco was also big in that space. Uh, Taito, there's, there's a bunch of uh, manufacturers that come up there and they do fine because they're, you know, just selling games to people who are fine with playing games. Um, they don't have these weird hangups about them. Uh, you know, the industry in Japan is really important to the arcade industry in the United States because, you know, especially the success of Periscope really invigorates the or reinvigorates the arcade game industry. Um, This is also the era, and I wouldn't, I would have put this a lot earlier. This sort of late 60s, early 70s era is when Whack-A-Mole comes out. Oh. They didn't have it before, which I was very surprised to see. It's also when air hockey was invented. So, like, there's, there's a lot of just, like, there's a lot of games you wouldn't necessarily associate with arcade culture, more like 
pizza parlor culture or <laughs> you know movie theater culture almost uh, yeah that comes out in this era where where they've just been working away at these kinds of games and every once in a while one makes it big enough to be sold in the u.s but you know there's still i don't know there's still just this sense that hanging out in, in entertainment arcades is just not what respectable people do you know 1972 atari hits it big with pong we're kind of back where we started in the first one and it's a really important game but you know it's not going to bring back the uh, industry on its own other manufacturers get into it those japanese uh manufacturers start looking for um like they start working on their own uh video game arcade machines and really when you start seeing what we would call like the golden era of the arcade starts with taito's uh space invaders in 1978 which i don't know if you ask me to name like three arcade games i would probably give you space invaders pac-man and donkey kong personally yeah yeah i think that's the list for me too it it would be something pretty close to it and i bet space invaders would get on there nine times out of ten it's a good game for the era very impressive um still a lot of fun to play which is not something you can say about most of these games you get to 1980 and you get namco's pac-man in there uh and arcades becoming incredibly popular by the height of the arcade craze in 19 or in in north america and we're talking about something that was fringe at best in you know the mid 1970s by 1982 you're looking at over 10,000 video game dedicated arcades in north america which is massive you're looking at an arc, you're looking at an industry that goes from 2.8 billion dollars in 1980 1981 goes to 5 billion dollars 1982 gets to 8 billion dollars in the US alone Jeez extraordinarily profitable and i mean a lot of these games are designed right to basically take quarters um it's not always necessarily the most fun i mean they are fun but it's not not necessarily the most complicated and it's not necessarily the most fair yeah it's gonna try and get hard quickly but not so quickly that you're frustrated enough not to play again you want to find that sweet spot where people keep feeding in the quarters Remember what Bushnell said about the original game, right? Or specifically with Pong, right? You need something that any drunk at any bar can play, was was his specific words. You need something that you can walk up to a machine and figure out pretty quickly what it wants you to do and then continue putting money into it. (laughs) But they're making a lot of money. And again, that was part of the rationale behind the, the, the home console division right but there's always going to be people who want to go out to an arcade there are multiplayer games there is the social aspect there's usually you know food and things like that that are also a draw being out at an arcade is a fun time uh there's it it, it remains popular despite the uh the, the console market that being said the sort of suspicion around arcade uh culture i suppose remains in u.s society uh at large so you really start getting the sense that again kids are skipping school to go to the arcades and that's not okay you get the sense that for some reason um drug use or even just like as an on-ramp to uh smoking or alcohol abuse uh exists in these arcades there's this sort of sense that like there are unsavory types who hang out in arcades specifically to recruit kids into a criminal lifestyle. 
<laughs> which yeah. is which is weird. <laughs> um, mm. but it's like it's like it's a perfect it's a perfect milieu of like middle class anxiety. Uh, if that makes sense, like it's this it's this idea of like who are their kids hanging out with? You know, are they being safe when they're away from home? Um, you know, could they somehow be turned into criminals by these things? Not that crime is a you know some sort of a a, a wider societal force, but that somehow if you're in the wrong place at the right time, someone says, "Hey, kid, you want to do a crime?" and they go, "Okay," um, which is not <laughs> how any of this works. But like you know, there's there's you know there's also uglier stuff here. There's there's racial undertones to some of these anxieties, um, right. and. You know, there is also a concern about video games themselves. I want to be clear about this particular part. I think they were 100% warranted in this in the 1980s. There is a big difference between playing a video game and watching a movie. There is a participatory uh, element to it that is very, very new. And a lot of people, not just parents, but also uh, in the medical profession, in education, uh, who are extremely concerned about the effect that these games are having on kids' brains. That being said, it's been a very long time since then, and most of those concerns have been proven uh, vastly overblown, if not completely false. Um, I don't think we're still there anymore. Uh, things seem to be in a good spot. But at the time... If your kid is the first person you've ever known that has spent, you know, hours on end blowing up uh, uh, aliens on a video screen and actively participating in this, you kind of wonder, like, what is this teaching them, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is, when you watch a kid play a video game, like, they zone out hard. Like, they're in the zone. Like, they're, they're very po focused. They're very much paying attention. This is seen as, like, almost hypnotic. And that being a concern as well. Like, is this changing their, like, mental state while they're playing? Right, right. They're mostly just concentrating. It's fine. We know now. But uh, it's, a good, it's a good point that, like, there, there wasn't, uh, like, precedence for that so much. Absolutely none at all. There was nothing there for them to point back to and say, no, we've actually done the studies and this is, this is not harmful. This is no more harmful than any other type of uh, screen... Uh, entertainment and that's not to say that like let's let any kid do whatever they want like kids need supervision that's part of parenting you need to make decisions that are best for your child but it's not necessarily the medium's fault it's it's a matter of the interaction with uh, with your own kid and you know some kids don't take well to stuff like that it's just kind of how it goes but in any case, it's so brand new that people don't really know what to do with it they're really concerned about this sort of addictive property which is built right mm. into the games right like that's a big part of it but also kids enjoy them so they want to do them a lot um the mesmerizing qualities we talked about another important thing to remember in the early 1980s is that we're in the like we're smack in the middle of that D, &D moral moral panic right dungeons and dragons this right. idea this idea that role playing is somehow going to twist kids mentally into a place where they sort of lose touch with reality, I suppose is the easiest way to sum that up. What is the name? Speaking of, uh, speaking of it was Tom Hanks, wasn't it? Mazes and Monsters. Mazes and Monsters, that movie. Yeah. Man, that was funny. 
was <laughs> hilarious and 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 a little a little terrifying. Uh, uh, yeah, and and yeah, just a great example of this feeling. Yeah, for sure. I actually have an episode out about the Satanic Panic. Um, it's way back, but I'm sure it holds up well enough. Um, it's it's a really interesting cultural phenomenon. But again, you get into that sort of that sort of middle class panic thing of of how safe are my kids essentially, and you can understand where that comes from. But putting that on putting that on Donkey Kong is kind of a weird way of expressing that in the world, you know? So then what happens is parents are going, well, I don't really want arcades in my neighborhood, right? It's NIMBYism. So they're going like, well, that's, that's too accessible. Like we don't want them in our little suburb, you know, going to town councils and, and preventing the zoning of arcades near to them. So what that, right. What that causes is arcades popping up in worse and worse neighborhoods, which is a feedback loop, which starts to actually cause some of the things they were worried about in the first place, namely potentially more exposure to criminality and substance abuse and things like that, that wouldn't have been there if they hadn't just forced them out of the neighborhood in the first place. And then they can point to real examples and they can further zone them out and the arcades get worse and so on and so on. Right. 1983, the Surgeon General of the United States comes forward and claims that games are harmful to children. You know, uh, 1976, there's a game that comes out called Death Race uh, in which you are in a race where you have to like run down pedestrians or, or rather that was the original. I think they switched it to aliens to make it a little bit less controversial but it, it never really stuck that sort of like this is an actual violent act that could happen in the real world aspect is a problem i don't know they never took it out on light gun games which is weird but but that one bothered people a lot uh, all of this kind of adds up to to parents really being uh you know upset about the idea of of arcades um, you know, as I said, getting pushed further and further away from where kids are actually able to participate safely. And, you know, this, this rezoning, uh, has a, a pretty big impact on revenues. Less kids can get to these arcades that have the pocket money to continue feeding those machines. Uh, and you see revenue start to decline sharply over the course of the 1980s. We've got the PCs coming into the market that kind of pulls some people away from the arcades, creates a different sort of concern about video game playing, which is the like that whole, whole like never comes out of the basement sort of vibe. Right. You can no longer claim, uh, uh, you know, strong negative uh, outside influences or interactions with with ne'er do wells. But certainly, mm -hmm. why, you know, why don't you go outside? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know. I think what really ends up hurting uh, arcades, especially in the in the United States, is that when it finally does resurge in nineteen in the nineteen nineties, it's mostly driven by much more realistic, much more violent games. You know, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, things like that, which simply reinforces all of these beliefs that parents have. So, from a sociological stand uh, standpoint, video game arcades are a real flash in the pan in the United States. Uh, it's not something that most people are ever entirely comfortable with. I mean, kids love them, don't get me wrong, but there is always this little bit of pearl clutching that goes along with it. And a lot of the decisions that come out of that end up indirectly or directly hurting the industry quite a bit. So you get this sense that's tied into all video games, not just arcades, that like there's something 
not quite right about spending too much time with with video games or in some people's cases there's not some or there's something wrong with wanting to play video games at all right they're very much discouraged by by some parents and it it does seem to have certainly on the arcade side of the industry has a massive impact on its viability uh, after 1983 it takes the same dive that uh, home consoles do uh, it's it's really it really really hurts as an industry and and thousands of these arcades close down. A lot of times you'll see these games end up again in the corner of a pizza parlor or uh, you know at a movie theater things like that. Um, I don't know. I I would hazard a guess that it's probably like Chuck E. Cheese that like rescues the industry at all. Right. Um, and that's very much set up as being like as family friendly as humanly possible. Right still operating under, under the same uh you know under the same principles of, of taking as much money as possible but there's a fun you know animatronic mouse and and it's it's aimed at kids and it's designed to be a safe space and you can build them in the suburbs so it's fine um you know it's it's just a very different thing uh and so yeah I, again when you look at Atari in the context of, you know, the Surgeon General coming out the same year that Atari crashes and saying games are harmful for children, or parents being concerned that playing too many video games is going to either hypnotize or uh, make their children into uh, violent criminals, um, all of a sudden people seem a little less inclined to purchase video games for their children. For for that to line up as neatly as it does. I don't know. Can we can we necessarily blame Atari entirely for a cooling of the overall video game market when, yeah, they built a couple of uh, uh, arcade games, but they're certainly not uh, responsible for the entire arcade industry. Um, how much of that is them being swept up in that? Let's uh, let's zoom out one more time. I got one last one for you. If uh, if those forces didn't seem big enough, in uh, in the year nineteen seventy nine. Uh, the pro-U.S. Shah of Iran was overthrown in a coup in favor of Ayatollah Khomeini after there's massive discontent with the, the Shah's rule in Iran. Uh, all of this is, is, you know, by the way, the, the U.S.-backed uh, uh, Shah of Iran who was installed in the earlier Iranian revolution, right? Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but Adam, what does this have to do with video games? <laughs> We're getting there. Don't worry. A big portion of this revolution, and it's an interesting revolution for a lot of reasons, because like Iran was actually doing pretty well at that point in time. Usually when, when revolutions come around, there's a lot of other stuff that precipitates it, usually involving um, you know, poverty or famine of some sort, right? That's not where we were at in Iran at that point in time. A big portion of the discontent that leads to the Shah's overthrow is thousands of oil workers going on strike in Iran. Mm. This uh, has a massive impact on global oil production and global oil supply. There's a, I mean, I say massive, there's about a 4% drop in production, which doesn't seem like that much. Today would probably be, you know, your, your prices would go up at the pumps, but nobody's going to panic too, too much, especially if there's a very clear reason why. You're going to see a couple months of instability in the actual oil market and, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. But the context for that is that six years earlier in 1973, there was the OPEC crisis. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but essentially uh, oil producing uh, countries in the Middle East realized that they could 
put the screws to Europe and North America, economically speaking, by just turning off the taps. And that was in uh, response to Egyptian-Israeli conflicts at the time. Mm. So these are like very big geopolitical forces that are at play here. We're fresh off the OPEC crisis just a couple years before. People see the oil supply drop again six years later. It conjures images of, you know, the the lineups at the gas pumps that you saw in the early 70s. And the market reacts pretty strongly to this whole thing. You see more than a double in prices on oil, which is extremely significant. Um, That being said, the prices that they go to, I wish we had today, but, you know, that's another issue altogether. Uh, It jumps from, you know, 15... Uh, between $15 and $20 to like the high $40 per barrel. The year after that coup in Iran, Iran goes to war with Iraq. In 1980, there's the Iran-Iraq war, which further hurts oil production. It's like another 8% drop in oil production, globally speaking. And at that point, the world's economies just sort of can't take that much instability. There's so much money tied up in the oil trade that pretty much globally we go into a recession, arguably the worst economic crisis since World War II. Price volatility leads to double-digit inflation rates in most countries, which is uh, pretty significant. It also leads to increased interest rates trying to curb that inflation, but it goes into place so quickly that it ends up actually hurting uh, consumers on like you know personal finance sides of things. And you end up with something that's known as stagflation, which is where unemployment is going up at the same time as uh, you have a recession. It's pretty tough times in most places in the world. Sorry, I, I described stagflation as high high uh, inflation at the same time as high unemployment. That's wrong. It's actually high interest at the same time as uh, high unemployment. My, my mistake. So, gotcha. by the time you get to 1982, which, may I remind you, is the year that ET released, on the Atari 2600. By 1982, in the United States, over 2.9 million jobs had been lost in the United States. That's a lot of people out of work. Moreover, it's mostly jobs being lost in the manufacturing sector. Those are jobs that are never really going to come back to North America. That's, uh, that's essentially the end of the manufacturing sector as it was known between the war and, uh, and the 1980s, which is right. something that you know, we continue to kind of look back at economically speaking, at least in political rhetoric. And it's just sort of, it was a, it was a flash in the pan caused, you know, by the war and the circumstances after the war. And the 1980s is when it came crashing back down. Um, but it leaves 3 million people out of work and a lot of other people with extremely tight finances. And one of the first things that people cut when going through such a significant, uh, recession is, um, you know, leisure spending. So you, you, you brought it back. Here we are. <laughs> so how much Colin, how much of the reason that ET didn't sell on Christmas of 1982, how much of that failure to sell at expected rates has to do with the fact that ET itself was programmed in five weeks instead of five months, and how much of it has to do with the fact that the entire world was going through a massive recession? How much of it is that people didn't have as much to spend Christmas 1982? How much of the crash in the PC sales in 1983 could be put back to a massive recession? 
Am I blaming everything on the recession? Absolutely not. But what I want to do here is point out that it's not a non-issue. Yeah. Yep. There's a big argument to made here to say that who cares about a video game crash? The entire economy was in crisis in 1982, 1983. Essentially the largest crisis that was seen in North America until the housing market crashed in 2008. Like, it's it was... It was substantial. A lot of those jobs just never came back. The U.S. market shifted into uh, service industry stuff. That's the only reason that they managed to get the jobs back. And this all happens under Reagan, which leads to you know some pretty uh, strong austerity measures to deal with this stuff, right? Rather than blowing people up, it's sort of a let's tighten our belts kind of approach to things, which doesn't leave a lot of room for the video games. Right. One country does a lot better through this recession than most other uh, countries in the world. And that, con- that country is Japan. I was going to guess Japan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They, they are hit a little bit by the recession. Like they see like slightly higher uh, inflation rates, but not nearly as high as you would see in the rest of the world. Like they stay in the single digits, which is considered exceptional at the time. Why? I guess is the is the is the reasonable question at this point, right? Japan has a very different economy than what you're looking at from mainly the United States at this point in time. The United States is very much like an export economy, right? Significantly de- uh, dependent on uh, transport, which is oil. Uh, significantly dependent on manufacture, which again is energy sector. Once exports go down, you're looking at a pretty bad problem. And if a recession goes global, um, other countries also don't have money to buy your exports, which is just going to continue to hurt your own economy. It's a pretty difficult cycle to break out of. The recession basically just has to end. Japan, on the other hand, has had a very strong economy ever since, well, post-World War II, right? In 1947, they began rebuilding after the Second World War, uh, somewhat under the direction of the United States. But Japan is a little bit of a different thing. They are very, very quickly modernizing, um, which gives them the ability to kind of leapfrog certain, I don't know, I suppose rabbit trails that other countries went down that maybe delayed their their progress, economically speaking. Um, right. It's a bit of a, a, an advantage there. They're also very much a demand economy. They're very much buying things for their country. And so when oil prices are going down, when the costs of goods are going down, that's only helping them to some extent. Their economy is already expectant uh, or, or already attempting to keep uh, energy prices as low as possible because Japan doesn't really have a lot of natural resources uh, domestically that will help with uh, uh, energy stuff. Like they don't have oil reserves really. Um, even the United States at that point in time, as much as they're importing from uh, from the Middle East, they have domestic oil production, right? Which is helping to to even out some of that uh, uh, some of those shocks. Except when you end up in a full blown recession. So Japan is already expecting high transport prices, high uh, fuel prices, things like that. They decide that the way they're going to ride out that economic storm beginning in 1979 is they're going to refocus their economy on specifically electronics. 
They want to move away from transport sector stuff as much as possible because they're seeing that it's a vulnerability to their economy in general. Right. So they're in a spot by the time that crash comes four years later where it, it absolutely hits them. Of course it does. But you know, they spent the 60s and 70s focused on, very strongly on education. They're one of the highest educated uh, workforces in the world. They're all very, very young. Uh, generally speaking, there's a lot of working age people who are highly qualified. So you're in a spot where they're uniquely positioned to um, have a, a large sector of their workforce working in specifically electronics. And they also have uh, all of the all of the research that um, you know the United States and Europe has put into electronics, um, they can basically buy it from them or license it from them um, without having to do as much R and D on their own to get basically up to a world standard. There's one other thing that's really interesting about Japan post-war, which is to this day they're actually not. It's written right into their constitution. They're not allowed to have an armed forces. Now they do have like a defense force, which is sort of a way to get around it, but they're not allowed to take offensive actions uh, overseas. And they're not allowed to develop military technology of their own, which means that all of the people that the United States has working throughout the Cold War on developing military technology, Japan doesn't have that draw on their knowledge base for electronics. Right. Okay. Instead, everything that they have, all the people that they have who are focused on electronics development are focused on consumer side electronics. So a lot of the developments that are coming in computing are coming from Japan because they have the people to work on it. They're not all getting scooped up to work on the next ICBM. Arcade culture is also significantly healthier in Japan. Uh, I looked for a while to find out why is that, and I, then I realized that it's more why isn't American culture more healthy about arcades. <laughs> they they have their arcades in much safer places. There is a a social understanding that it's not you know if you have a bad day at the office and you're coming home but you just need to blow off a little bit of steam. There's an arcade beside your train station. You can pop in there for twenty minutes and play, and that's a very normal thing to do. Uh, moreover, a lot of those arcade producers in Japan that we talked about have their own arcades. Like it, it's, it's the equivalent of like, uh, a Fox owned movie studio or a movie theater. Rather, there is like a Sega arcade that you would go to. And so there's sort of an incentive to keep those arcades a lot nicer because it reflects back on the company that's actually selling the machines. The better the arcades are, the more machines you can sell. Whereas when, where they're selling to a, a North American market, they don't really care what kind of establishments it's going into. They're also better about switching things out as soon as they get stale. They're constantly innovating on their machines. So all of this together, the shock of the global economy, the difference in arcade culture, the difference in the consumer market electronics, all of that comes together to 1983 when the crash in North America is not actually called the video game crash in, in Japan. It's known as the Atari shock as in like, Oh, I can't believe that happened. That's weird. <laughs> um, no, I think it's more of like a shock to the, to the, uh, to the industry. But point being, right. it didn't, it didn't destroy companies. Sega is still making arcade machines and they have their own arcades and they're doing just fine. Same with Namco. I think I have, uh, I think I've seen one of them before. 
Yeah, I would imagine you. I, I would imagine you would have while you were there. They're fairly prevalent. Gaming centers are, are quite uh, common, much cleaner than you would expect uh, from from you know but, but from the way that we talk about arcades here, right? Like it's it's very yeah. There is that like grimy sort of insinuation, I suppose. That doesn't exist for game centers there. A lot of Japanese companies who were considering getting into the console space kind of think, well, maybe maybe this is over. Maybe we should pull back. But there is one company, Nintendo, who largely made playing cards actually before all of this. Um, they had had success in, in the early 80s with their Game & Watch series, which are little handheld games. Um, very, very basic, but a lot of fun, very popular. Uh, they had also released Donkey Kong as a as an arcade game, which was extremely popular. They had a lot of money to work with, and the Japanese market was healthy, and they decided to take a crack at it. And in 1983, they released the Famicom. Now, originally, as we talked about, they were considering working with Atari to distribute in North America, but when Atari went south, they decided to wait a little bit, do a bit of a development, assess the situation and decide what they can do to avoid Atari's mistakes going forward. The things that they decided on were number one, quality control is paramount. We can't have the market flooded with terrible games. So they built in a control chip into the North American version, the NES that would check whether or not the cartridge was uh, genuine or not. And that was a way to keep people from basically knocking off cartridges and selling bad versions. This didn't last the entire cycle of the NES, but it took a long time before it was broken. Right. They also did the whole, like, remember the, like, the Nintendo, like, seal of quality that would go on games? That's, yes, the little uh, gold circle thing. Yeah, that's the reason for it. It was them saying, like, we guarantee that this is a good game. And they would check them. They would check them. They would they would check any game from a third party uh, provider uh, for quality before allowing it to be released. It had to be signed off for. Number two, American audiences would require reassurance after what had happened. They, I don't know if you've ever seen a photo of a Famicom, but it's very different than like the NES you would see in North America, right? It's bright red. The cartridge loads on the top. Like it's it's very like it looks like a toy. They decided that like. They needed to do something a little bit different. So if you look at an NES, number one, it's gray. So it looks a little bit more like any other piece of consumer electronics at the, at the time. They don't mention video games anywhere. They mention game packs is about the closest you're going to get for the cartridges. Uh, they call it an entertainment system, not a game console. Uh, they're trying to very much have it as the kind of thing that will just fit into your living room the same way any other piece of electronics would even the way that the cartridge loads is like because with the nes you put it in the front and then you like click it down right mm -hmm. that's how you would load a, a vhs tape into a vcr at that point in time right right that's mainly there to make it seem more like a serious piece of electronics number three their third lesson was that market saturation had to be avoided at all costs. So they became very conservative with their production uh, quotas uh, to make sure that they didn't just flood the market with uh, games and systems. Uh, and as a sidebar, they've never unlearned that that lesson ever because if you try to buy any console from Nintendo uh, early in its life cycle, you will not get it. It's very, very hard to get. They yeah. do not make enough anymore. 
that's where they learn this. The other side of that is in terms of making games, every publisher was limited to only five games a year to make sure that they didn't just make so many that it would be, you know, a wash in like the market wouldn't be a wash in games and people wouldn't know what's good or what's bad. And finally, the last lesson that they learned from Atari's collapse was that risk had to be pushed to publishers whenever possible. So they set up a system where um, they only developed a few games in-house. The rest were done by third-party developers, but those third-party developers and third-party publishers had to buy the cartridges from Nintendo and they couldn't return them. So once they bought cartridges from Nintendo, they were stuck with them. And if their game didn't go well, that's too bad for that publisher, but Nintendo isn't going to take the financial hit. So Nintendo is buoyed by the same Japanese economy that we just talked about through the mid-1980s. Uh, Japan has an amazing 1980s, economically speaking. People had money to burn. There's other uh, Japanese consoles like the Sega SG-1000 that did really well in Japan, but it didn't make the jump to uh, North America. In 1986, as we've mentioned a couple of times, NES is brought over to North America. It's modified for the lessons that they've learned. North American economy is finally bouncing back from the recession. Uh, it took them a long time, but they're getting there. So discretionary income is, is a thing again, uh, or discretionary spending rather. Uh, you know, And people are finally willing to try out this new thing because everything they've heard about it is great quality and they're sort of kind of forgetting about Atari a little bit. <laughs> and so... It does great. It sells really well. And it's basically the only console on the market until the Sega Genesis in 1988. So it also has basically 100% market share, uh, which also helps its success immensely. Hang on. Yep. Sorry. Just because just I, I know some of this stuff. Was it the Genesis that came along or was it the Master System? Oh, I could be wrong. Was it the Master System in 1988? I think the Master System predates the Genesis. The... the, the well, now I am not sure. <laughs> this one, the, go, the facts, the facts on this one feel a little riskier than some of the other topics, eh? Uh, Sega Master System, third generation, eight-bit home video console, Japan, nineteen eighty-five. So maybe, uh, <laughs> you said. Uh, I said North American release, though. North American's eighty-six on that one. Yeah, so it didn't do terribly well in North America. It must not have, yeah. The Genesis was October 1988 in North America. Yes, it was. Wow, that's a pretty short cycle for uh, for that. Sorry, okay, cool. I'm actually wrong on that too. 1988 in Japan, 1989 in North America. Now that we've got our facts ah. straight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Nintendo's success in 1986. We've talked about this yeah. a number of ways here, right? Was it because the, the market was left completely open because Ray Kassar did some insider trading and pushed, uh, pushed his developers to make a terrible game in five weeks? Was it because the, uh, the race for the, you know, a slice of the PC market pie uh, left the entire um, North American electronics market gutted? Was it because... Americans don't uh, trust new forms of fun, or was it because uh, of a fluke in the the world's economy that basically cut spending literally everywhere, and uh, video games happen to be a a casualty of it all? The answer seems to be yes. Correct. I agree with you. <laughs> and so 
yeah, I, I think I think the reason I wanted to talk about this was because yeah, I mean this is a this is a very approachable version of this uh, principle, right? We're talking about the video game crash of 1983. We know how this story turns out. Video games are okay. <laughs> They're making a lot of money. Uh, you know, the vast majority of households have uh, someone in them who who plays video games. The vast majority of them have a video game uh, device of some sort. Um, the, the industry is fine. I think they're they're making twenty or twenty five billion dollars a year right now just in North America alone. Um, they're okay. It's fine. But we can look at this very specific moment in history and see very different stories here, right? And each one of these, I could have sat here and told you any one of these sections, maybe a little bit fleshed out, and you would probably have walked away very convinced that it was precisely one of these things. Yeah, yeah. You got to be careful when you're talking about complex issues in history. And and I, I, I know people know this. It's just such a great example of how easily the story can be framed in different ways that, you know, there's a lot of times on this show where I'm talking about something that spans hundreds of years, thousands of years, and I'm giving two, three sentence answers or, or explanations for things that every single one of them are easily this complex. And that's not just me, that's everywhere in history, right? Like, you have to at a certain point. So when you go to an article about the video game crash of the 80s and someone says, it happened because of E.T., I mean, sort of. But also, they just don't have the space to say all the other stuff. They're not wrong. It's noteworthy that E.T. was such a bad video game uh-huh. that people are willing to accept that <laughs> as as the only or even the core reason for that crash. Yeah, I agree. But it's it's also been it's always been really interesting to me from a point of like, are we really going to accept that somebody made a game that was so bad that? it crashed an entire sector. Like, you know what I mean? Like that would be, that would be remarkable. <laughs> like anywhere else that would make no sense. Nike put out a shoe that was so uncomfortable that no one bought shoes for three years. <laughs> it would make no sense. Yeah. What about Adidas? What are they doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just on its face, a little bit of a weird thing. It's just a good story. And so people are willing to get behind it. And that's the other danger that I'd like to point out here is sometimes a story is so good that people don't question it. Right. And this is one of them, I think, because that is yeah. a great story, especially the burial in the in the landfill. Right. Like that's that's really intriguing stuff. People get really caught up in that. Sounds like a, a special, you know, very secret conspiracy theory that only certain people are in. It's like, eh, everybody's heard of it. It's OK. It's not that it's not that niche anymore. <laughs> But it's also definitely not the reason that this company went under, or this sector went under, or it's not the only reason, I should say. Yeah, they overextended on ET. That was a that was a big part of their financial failings. Had they done that and the world economy hadn't collapsed, would they still have been okay? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, yeah, if uh, if if Japan's economy hadn't been as strong, would anything have uh, replaced the video games industry, or would it have been a weird blip where people looked back and said, "Wow, why did we do that? That was." bizarre there's also this theme and this feeling throughout though that there's an inevitability to that type of technology right it came up a bunch of times anytime uh, a new technology was invented that was capable of playing games mm-hmm. people were gonna play games on it and and that made it feel like yeah it was it was coming back the story of how uh is is super interesting and 
noteworthy and interesting for me that Nintendo learned so much from uh, Atari's failure. Yeah, I uh, I recommended, or rather, I didn't recommend. I very specifically did not recommend the uh, the documentary on excavating the the landfill in the first half. Uh, it's called Atari Game Over. But I am going to rip off an analogy that I heard in that, um, just shamelessly because it was so good. And I forget who it was in that. I'll I'll double check it. But somebody that they were in for interviewing for that documentary basically said, "It's like when." a bunch of penguins jump through a hole in the ice. Usually it's going to be the first one that gets eaten by a seal. And then the other ones will know if there's seals there or not. But somebody's got to be first. And somebody's got to get eaten. Or be safe, right? (laughs) Like, you have to see what happens. And then, I'm butchering this analogy, but like, I I thought that was really interesting. He's basically saying like, the the first one's not always going to succeed. It's In fact, it's rare for the first one to succeed. The first one could crash very easily. But if it does, then the second one knows what's up. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Nintendo benefits massively from that, uh, from those errors that that Atari made simply from not knowing better. And maybe Atari could have recovered even from their mistakes and learned from their lessons, if not for the many other extenuating factors. Well, that's the thing. If there was no Famicom ready to swoop in and take the market, you know, Atari did have that new console, right? The 5200. Could they have retooled that and tried coming back in 85 or 86? Uh, we'll never know that, but who knows? Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, you can, you can get down those, those counterfactual paths really easily. Um, but it is an interesting thing to think about, you know, if any of these things hadn't been in place, how would it look different? And the fact that any of these factors changing has a fairly predictable change on the outcome, uh, you know, that we can, we, you know, you and I can step through relatively easily just goes to show that each of them had a, a real impact on what actually happened because of the way they turned out in reality. Right. So that's the video game crash of 83. I bet you didn't expect the Iranian revolution in there. Did not? Nope. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, 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 had a, I had a fun time doing this one. I like doing these, these kind of different perspectives on the same uh, topic type of things to, uh, to discuss with you guys. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting way of looking at things. Um, it gives you a little bit, uh, better flexibility to, to explain things in terms of, of, uh, pulling together very disparate, uh, cause and effects. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I had a really good time. I hope you did too. Me too. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Hope you come back soon. It can sometimes be difficult when reading history to remember that every event, no matter how distant or complex, was experienced in real time. Trends that took decades or centuries are only apparent with the benefit of hindsight, and the people who lived through them were almost certainly unable to see them, but still made decisions on a human scale that contributed to those trends. The video game crash of 1983 is a good case study in this principle. We can see relatively clearly, only a few decades later, how everything from global economic trends to social and moral values to the decisions of individual employees all played a part in shaping something that could be written off as a single sentence. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, Colin and I got very confused near the end over the timelines and success of various Sega consoles, with me falling victim to the exact oversimplification I just finished warning you about. But I've clarified all of that information. That correction and more are on the site.
If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky, and this has been HI101. Oh.